Up next, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio. Good morning, everyone. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. It's so wonderful to be here and to have you listening. And got a great show lined up, but musical. We've got Craig Smith. He's a musician and children's author. And he wrote the brilliant books, uh, Wonky Donkey. And when I say books, there's a series about the Wonky Donkey, and he has them accompanied by song. So we're going to be talking about his latest book, uh, Stinky Wonky Donkey. (laughs) And we're going to hear his song. It's a fabulous Kiwi story. Also along with us is the indomitable uh, Ellie Cook, Uh, She's now amongst all the other things that she's doing, standing for Parliament. Uh, We're going to catch up with her, where her petition is, how Bailey, her son, is getting on, uh, everything that we cover with Ali, and it'll be a lot of fun. Thank you for joining us. We'll talk with Rodney Hyde on Rally Check Radio. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation, and I think we have lost the art of conversation. With RCR, I just hope that people can learn that we can all be different, we can have our own opinions, have our own views, and have those conversations in a respectful way, because respect needs to be given, it needs to be earned, and I think that we can prove that people of all diverse perspectives, ages, opinions, can have a platform, and we can work and talk together, and so that's what I hope we get to achieve with RCR. Just independent thought, alternative thought, and I I expect that I will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions but you know as i've said before there is no such thing as a wrong opinion opinions are like noses everybody's got one the exchange of views fair debate no cancelling no interrupting no aggressive responses we want to hear what people have to say whatever side you're on and the listener the consumer with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. You're listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Here on Reality Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. And I always say this, we've got a special guest, but uh, my kids love reading, love books, love being read to. And their favorite book is Wonky Donkey. Yeah. And we're we're very um privileged to be joined by the author, uh Craig Smith, who's got another book out. Good morning, Craig. Good morning, Rodney. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm fascinated by uh authors. Yes. And because I can't imagine I actually uh, lucky enough, I've written a couple of books, but they're about things that I sort of knew about. And but I can't imagine writing nonfiction, and I absolutely can't imagine writing a children's book. Um, 
and you've done it, and not only have you done it, and I just want to tell listeners this, Craig's book, he as an author, he is the number one children's book author by sales every year for just on 15 years in New Zealand. So he's the number one author for children's books. But get this, across all books, he's number two in New Zealand over that time behind Annabelle Langbein, who does the cooking books, right? So cooking books and children's books are big sellers, but there's a lot of cooking books, a lot of children's books, and they don't necessarily sell, but yours do. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, I mean, I've, I've written plenty of, of stories that when I take on the road, I, I have a huge advantage um, over a lot of other authors in the way that I write mine in song. And then I actually perform the songs in front of children all the time. And so I get to see what works and what doesn't work. And so I, I sort of uh, market, test my stories before they actually become uh, books on the shelf. And so if I've written a line that I think is funny and no one's laughing, I know to go back and rewrite it. Or I know to discard it altogether. Or sometimes I've written something that's just sort of a little bit of a throwaway line. And everyone cracks up. And so I go, oh, hang on a second. That's actually bitten a bit more than I thought it would. And so I know to go a little bit more in that direction or or the other. So I have a huge advantage. So that's why when the books finally get to the store, I kind of know that they're going to do pretty well. And so your books as written are actually songs that you perform. Correct. Yeah. So I write all my stories in songs. And so you're traveling around. We'll get to that because you're an amazing author um, and you've touched a lot of lives. You've touched a lot of kids' lives, um, which must be amazing as you travel around. But I'd like to find out a little bit about you and then onto the books and onto the new book. But you were, you're a musician. Yeah. So I picked up the guitar when I was 12. A guy called Gary Kernahan at Queenstown or I should say Wakatipu um, High School taught me how to play guitar. And, um, yeah, I hadn't really thought about becoming a professional musician until in my mid-30s where I just went, you know what, just follow your heart a bit more and, and do more music. And so uh, I was playing in bars and pubs and beer gardens and things like that. Um, just back up the truck. Yep. When you picked up the guitar at 12, Yes. Did you love it? Yeah. I already already knew I'd, I wanted to play it. So had you done music previously to that? No, but oh, look, I was a huge fan of the day, the, the, the singer-songwriters of the day. You know, Neil Young comes, springs to mind, yes. um, Cat Stevens, James Taylor, Bob Dylan, all these amazing, so, um, Harry Chapin, you know, all these amazing singer-songwriters, and they all play guitar. And, uh, you know, when you're 12, you've got these <laughs> images of playing guitar and being famous and, you know. So, I, I, yeah, I, I, and, and I had a voice. I knew I had a voice because I was I could sing along. I could sing along to those um, artists, you know. 
And you go off to Wakatipu High School mm-hmm. and like you could elect to do music. Yes. So you did it in class time, like it wasn't extra tuition or it was just class no, time? Actually, the, the class time was was the, the only classes that they had at Wakatipu High School at the time were, were sort of semi-classical. And yes. that wasn't me. So I didn't do it in class. Uh, the, the caretaker, uh, Gary Kernahan, taught me. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so he taught me sometimes at lunchtime, just, you know, and he, he was back in the 80s. He'd have a cigarette and bring his guitar in, and I'd sit by the tractor sheds and we'd have a bit of a jam. That happened a few times. But then what he said is, look, Craig, I need a babysitter from time to time. And would you, would you babysit for us? Uh, for me and my wife and Donovan, this child, and um, and I'll teach you how to play guitar. I, I couldn't afford a guitar at that time, so Gary had one in his house, and so I'd go there and he'd show me certain chord changes and, and write th- certain chords down, and then he'd go out for two or three hours with his wife, and I'd sit there and play guitar. And did it come easily to you? Um what I found in my life, it's my superpower, but it's also my <clears throat> my undoing in many things, is my focus. Once I've once I've decided I'm going to do something, I, I tend to throw a lot of effort into it, and and a lot a lot of times at the detriment of, to other things. Yeah. But when you're twelve and learning guitar, it doesn't matter. So I just threw, I just played and played and played, played until my fingers beat, literally. You know? And did you learn to read music? No. No. And to this day, you can't read music? Still can't read music to this day. Isn't it funny? Because I don't, is it like a lot of pop stars and great musicians couldn't read music, right? Yeah, I guess it's the same sort of thing. They just they just have a passion for it and they pick it up and play it. But, you know, there's a lot of people who did uh, know how to read music as well. But um, uh, there's a lot of people who, who didn't. Yeah. And I just... Oh, I just play from the heart and play from the ear. Yeah. And when you play, did you sing? Yes. Yeah. So you... and initially, just initially at the end of my bed, so not in front of people. Yeah. <laughs> but then, you know, when I was 18, 19, you know, oh, there might be the odd party or two and I'd, I'd play. Uh, what, I, what I learned earlier is if you play something like Knocking on Heaven's Door, which which everybody knows, uh, and the chorus, knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. You know, you can, the whole party will join you on that. Yes. And so you're not alone. You're not just by yourself singing. You're just part of the crowd, even though you've initiated it and you're singing it, everyone else joins in. And so it's way more comfortable. So that's that's the that was one of the tips that I learned early was if, if you're going to play at a party, play something that everybody knows. And then it's not so daunting because everyone starts singing with you. When I sing knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door, <laughs> in my head, it yeah. sounds beautiful. Right. <laughs> but I'm but, the only person who hears it that way. Yeah, but the thing is, is if you've got 20 other people singing with you and they all sound good, you, 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 that's yeah. what I'm, my point. Yeah. And, yeah. um, and I mean, Bob Dylan had a funny voice, really, or has a funny voice, yeah. right? But it was so evocative because it was, it was um, the the voice chimed with the music and the lyrics. It was haunting. 
taunting. Yeah, and I think also because he was an everyday man. Like his yes. voice was an everyday. Yes. Obviously, his music writing and his lyric writing weren't, but his voice was. It was very everyday. Yes. And um, and I think that was part of the appeal. Yes. Um, what do you think of Richmond, north of Richmond? Oh, I love it. I love it. I'm just going to check. Because gonna... his voice and his music are a perfect match for who he is, right? And so, well, yeah. they use the word authentic. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And it's a bit like your books. It just took off from nowhere, right? Yeah, I mean, I I toured, I, I played music for a good, um, I started playing music probably 2000 and like full-time music, um, <clears throat> probably about 2005, 2006. That's when I did it as a job full-time. And, um, and the book didn't come out until 2009. Um, so I, I didn't actually, um, you know, like, like I had, I had actually quite a few years of groundwork down. Yes. So it wasn't, and, and, and part of that was singing two kids as well. I started to do a lot of kids stuff and, um, yeah, so it was, it was pretty good that I had that advantage again. What did you do if it's not rude? Oh, by the way. I don't know how to word this, Craig, but I imagine playing a guitar and being able to sing and sing Knocking on Heaven's Door, it'd be pretty cool when you're 16, 17, 18, 19, and I'm thinking particularly with girls. Yeah, well, that was a big a big draw card. <laughs> Huge. <laughs> yeah, because for even if, it, if it's only, like often I'd be at a party and the guitar would be passed around. And, um, yeah, you, you were centre of attention for three or four yeah. minutes while you're singing a song, So, or if you're doing several songs. So that's always a bonus. Uh, we had at school a guy who no one noticed. And one night at school we had a, 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 a dance, which I never danced. And I really hated it. It was like my idea of a nightmare, funny enough, dance a dance. <laughs> but this young boy came out and no one had noticed him. And he sat at the piano and he played and sang Nights in White Satin. Oh, yeah. And he had the most tremendous voice. And like the whole school stopped. Yeah. And attitudes changed. Attitudes changed. Like he yeah, was sure. the coolest kid, because mm. um, he could play the piano and he could sing "Nights in White Satin." And man, that was something. And that was you. I don't. I want to. I don't want to pry too deeply. But what did you no, do before you became a full time musician? Um. So I did. I mean, if you, I started when my first. Uh, I mean. I started doing things like kitchen handing. I live in Queenstown, grew up in Queenstown. And there's lots of jobs for me to carry bags up to rooms, kitchen hand, waiter, all that sort of stuff. Um, I worked at a Mexican restaurant for a while. <laughs> I worked at a fruit and vegetable wholesale market delivering vegetables around Queenstown, uh, Aerotown and stuff like that. Um, but um, but then I went up to Auckland and I got a job in door-to-door -door sales. 
And mm. I did that for quite some time and quite successfully. And I went to Australia and opened up some businesses over there. And then I even went to Vietnam. And so I was importing products from China with a Canadian partner of mine. And we were training and, and developing um, sales teams in Vietnam. And I did that for six years. Wow. Yeah. So you had that, funnily enough, a good background in sort of dealing with people. Yep. And um, working out how to market. And then what prompted you, because it must have been quite scary, although it's not like, I'm guessing, I'm not trying to be rude, I love it, because I've never had a career, but you weren't a person that was like climbing a corporate ladder or working in a law office or being a doctor. You were sort of trying different things. Yeah. And then you said, okay, I'm going to commit. I'm going to be a full-time musician. What prompted that? Well, that's a good story. Um... I was already on the way to changing my career. Like I was in the sales and marketing sort of side of things. And then I left Vietnam, came back to New Zealand, and I was working with IHC, Bernardo's, things like that. Um, and we were doing, you know, you'd go door to door and we were selling uh, people to sign up to mm -hmm. our IHC and things like that. And then I got to a point where I went, you know, I need to be doing something different. and. And then I got a call from my friend, Chris Damport, who has a boat. And he was sailing from Opua to Tonga. And he rang me and out of almost out of jest, he just said, you know, oh, do you want to you come with me? I need, a, I need a crew. And I went, yeah, yeah, I do. So three weeks later, I was in Opua and up near Russell there. And we jumped on the, um, on the boat and sailed to Tonga halfway across. We got into a hurricane, <laughs> and then. Uh, By the way, had you sailed before? No, oh, I sailed, but never open ocean. So you knew how to sail, but like this is another level, very, right? Very briefly, yeah. But Chris is a Chris was Chris was a good sailor. Okay, so, so um, I was learning as I was going, yeah. And um, and so then we got halfway across. We got into a hurricane. Uh, in that hurricane, eight boats were either sunk or abandoned. And three people lost their lives. And our boat, for a split second, ended up upside down. Cheapest. And then it rolled, did a big roll thing. And while we were upside down, there was a split second where I, I thought, oh, I wish I'd done more music because I thought this, that we're gone here. There was, so uh, are you in a cabin and the boat's in the upside down in the water? What's that? You're in a cabin. Yep. And the boat's upside down. And you're in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. In, in a hurricane. <laughs> that's like... So if you want a wake-up call, that, that was it. And your only thought was, I wish I'd done more music. There was a couple of other thoughts, which I won't get into, but yeah. um, but one of the main thoughts was, I wish I'd done more music. And the boat righted itself. The boat righted itself. We obviously continued on and managed to uh, navigate our way through to Tonga. We spent a few months in Tonga. Um, but that thought never left me. You thought you were going to die? Yep, for sure. And three people, to be fair, did. Some yeah. people lost their fingers. Some people, you know, broke their arms, broke their legs. It was a big storm. Um, as I said, it was around 10-meter waves, 100-knot winds. Or we, had, we can't say 100-knot exactly, but our gauge stopped at 80. 
and then it got higher from there. So I'm guessing, I'm guessing close to 100 knot winds. And um, yeah, it was massive, mate. It was incredible. But that's when I just went right. Well, I've already quit my ass job to jump on this boat. I, I think I know what I'm going to do when I get home, and that was um, do more music. So, you know, by that stage, I'd written quite a few originals and was quite competent, and now I was just going to – and could play quite a lot of uh, cover songs. So I just started um, busking to start with, and then I started to book gigs uh, at pubs and clubs and beer gardens and all around Christchurch. Played at the uh, Rickerton Market a few years. So that's where I cut my teeth. And what's the economics of that like? Is it busking best or playing in a pub best or playing at the market best? Is, or is it all – how does that work? It depends on the day. But I would say, for me, busking was best. I'd make mm. more money playing – I would make more money busking than I did at a paid gig. But then you could busk for two or you know, three, three hours during the day and then you could do a three-hour gig at night. And, you know, part of the contract, you could just say, can I have a pub meal and uh, a couple of beers? And so so you'd basically have your your meals for free, and uh, I was able to save a lot of money. So you'd do six hours of music a day? Yeah, at least. Were you on your own doing it? Yeah. Well, I did have a band um, in Christchurch, and we got together quite uh, quite a bit. And uh, But the problem was... The thing is with band members, you, you you know, if you've got a gig down, let's say you're in Christchurch, you've got a gig in Methven, and you've got to leave early to to do the to do the gig. Everyone's got to be on board, you know, like the, the bass player, the, yes. the the drummer, and the keyboard. You know, if 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 one of them's late, it kind of blows it. And if one if 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 the girlfriend says to one of the band members, "Listen, I wanted to spend the weekend with you this weekend." then you, you can't book the gig. So I ended up doing lots and lots more solo stuff than I did with the band. Mm. And you were writing music, yes. writing your own songs. Yes. Was How does that happen? How does that happen? Um, sometimes it happens because you're mucking around on the guitar and you find a, a, a hook or a, a vibe or a chord sequence a specific sort of feel of a song and that reminds you of something and then you that that's something that's happened to you because it might be sad or happy because you're just mucking around going it's quite a happy sound or quite a sad sound whatever and then you start writing towards the music other times you've got ideas for the lyrics and then you try and find the music to fit the lyrics um so Often what I would do is I would shelve ideas until I found music, and then I'd go, oh, that music fits that piece, and then I would start. And often I would actually get two pieces of music, join them together, and make a full song that way. Uh, things that occur to me, you couldn't write your music down. No, I could write them. I could write it like A, A minor. I see. Yeah, C, and then while the, where the words are, you would put, Change to C here, change to B, yeah. yeah. And to me, I can't imagine, like every time I think of a tune, it's someone else's song, right? Right, yes. And I know this sounds silly, but you think the music must have run out because I can't think of a new tune. 
but obviously yeah you can think of new stuff i don't know i can't imagine how that happens in your head i guess you just do a lot of music and it comes you just do know. a lot of music there's only, i mean effectively there's only 12 chords there's seven majors and five minors and then on top of that there's you know i mean you might have seen that court case um that happened a wee while back with Ed Sheeran. I did. And and he was showing how the same four chords could be many, many different songs. And that's yeah. that that is true. Uh what it's what I would call accents, you know, so yeah. it's kinda like everyone speaks English, but if you go to Yorkshire and the UK, you're gonna notice a very big difference to the guy who speaks English in Alabama. Yeah. And guy who speaks English in Oxford and the guy who speaks English in New York and California, you can spot them. Canadians, you know, even if English-speaking uh, uh, Asians, you know, I, I can spot that if someone's speaking English and they're from the Philippines with that slight American twang or, yes. you know, uh, or if they're from Hong Kong, they've got a very specific way of speaking English. Um, so even English is the is the main language, but they've got all these accents, and that's mm. the way music kind of is. You've got uh, the same same chords, those twelve chords, but um, and they can be arranged in a myriad of ways. But then, of course, um, how how you put your accent into it is really really what it's about. And you're playing in the pubs and at markets and at gigs and busking. Um, did it sort of get tiresome in the sense that everyone's out having a good time and you're sort of having a good time playing music, but it's actually what you do for a job? Yeah, but, I mean, I really enjoy being the um, person who sets the mood and, and, and helps people enjoy. Like, even solo, I, I, I would do the first two gigs, sorry, the first two sets, I would do fairly cruisy, and then the last set, it was always a little bit more upbeat. And it was yeah. quite a lot of high-energy output for one person to do, but I always used to manage to get people up dancing. And wow. Cool. And that was fun. That, I enjoyed that. Um, but you are right. Some some days, you know, you don't want to do it, just like any yeah. other job, and you've just got to get up and get yourself into the right frame of mind. Um, for me, as a children's performer now, that's way easier to do than – than before because the crowd you only need one or two kids to to be really into you and you're having a blast you know yeah. so that's what i do if, if i'm feeling a bit under the weather or if i just you know i've done x amount of gigs over x amount of weeks and i'm like oh this is getting a bit much once i get started it's more about the packing up and loading down all this sort of stuff yeah once you get started just focus on one or two kids that are having a blast yeah. and it's easy Becomes very easy. Did drink become a problem when you're playing in pubs? No, I was pretty disciplined. I never drank what I played. Okay. Never. Burping in any key doesn't sound very good anyway. Yes. Um, so, and then at the end of the night, I, I might have one or two beers um, just to wind down after three hours of playing, whatever. Mm -hmm. watch, watch the rugby in the pub that you're playing at, whatever it is. And then, yeah, then I'd go home. So I was pretty, I was pretty good for that. Mm. Now, the big thing, what led you to the children's playing? How did that start? Yeah, well, that, I mean, that's just organic, really. I mean, as a professional musician, you get asked by your nieces and nephews, you know, can you play us a song today, and Craig? And, um, and so I used to start just making up silly little songs 
And, um, you know, I've got a whole bunch of rallies down south. And I've got a hunting and fishing lodge down in a place called Monowai and lots of sandflies down there. So one of the first songs I wrote was about squishing and squashing sandflies. And, you know, the kids just enjoyed it. And uh, I wrote another one called Will Be the Bumblebee, which was which just we turned into a book. Um, and that went, that was also went straight to number one. Um, and that was a story that my mum had sort of come up. So she's co-author on that. Um, and then it wasn't long after that that I wrote Wonky Donkey. So uh, I wrote that in TRNL. And that was, um, you could immediately see that was a fun hit. Everyone just giggling and laughing as I was playing it, kids and adults. Um, and, yeah, it just... It made sense that I started to do children's shows um, as well because, you know, I'd, I'd be at a festival and and I'd be playing three sets, three one-hour sets of, of music for the more mature, but then I'd sneak in about four or five songs for the kids and um, that I'd written. And I'd get parents coming up to me and saying, can we buy your CD? And I'd be like, yep, here it is here. And they go, have you got any kid songs on it? And I'd be like, no. And they were like, oh, okay, we're not interested in buying a CD. Yeah, so, yeah, so I decided to do a CD, um, you know, and um, I mean, not to say that my adults' CDs didn't sell. They still sold, but the, I, I could clearly see I was missing a, a trick here. And, and, you know, obviously to, to make money from doing something you love is important. Um, so, so I, I, it wasn't lost on me that people were coming up and asking me to buy CDs. So I went and made a CD, and then I entered Wonky Donkey and the Children's Music um, Song of the Year, and it won one children. Wow, Music. I didn't know that. Yeah, and so that was in two thousand eight with um, young lady Claudia Gunn. We co-shared it. She had a lullaby song, and I had Wonky Donkey. We sort of co-won that, and then because it won, that gave me. I'd already pitched. Um, publishers on the idea of doing the song as a book but um, hadn't had much success but then when it won New Zealand Children's Song of the Year I repitched it again and that's when Scholastic picked it up Well that's a good publisher too because it goes into all the schools, the little blurb right? Yeah and and they're the largest children's book uh, publisher in the world so (laughs) it's a great publisher to have if you want Mm. your book to go They're an international Yes, you're huge. The thing I notice about your books, and I imagine this is a big thing for parents and for children, is they're beautiful. Well, that's, I mean, that's Katz's work. Katz Cowley is the illustrator, and she was a friend of mine. She's also a musician. That's how we originally met. We met at a guitar clinic in Christchurch, and um, she showed me some of her artwork, and I was like, wow. So when I got the contract to be published i said to scholastic look i think you should have a look at this young lady's um artwork and initially they said no because they had their own stables of, and i said just have a look so they had a look and then they pulled the trigger on it they said yep okay she's pretty good so she ended up doing the uh, artwork for um for wonky donkey and the rest is history well it's beautiful beautiful she's wonderful do you collaborate with her like talk the ideas through for the artwork or do you let her come up with it? No, I I um I learned this even in music I learned this. You know, if you're trying to direct someone who's also creative, you're taking you're, you're taking a piece of their creativity away. You know, if you're saying I want you to, to draw it in a certain way, 
then you've already infected their mind, I guess, with that yes. with that thing. Whereas they may have had a thought, uh, which is way better than yours, mm. and you've sort of poisoned it in a way. So, mm. um, but that's not to say that after they've done the sketches, you might sit down together. And she might say, oh, I'm struggling in this area, or what do you think of this? Or, And that's where everyone sort of puts their five cents in with, and including the the publishers and myself. And uh, and we might sort of say, oh, I was hoping that at the end that the donkey looked like this and not like the way you've done it. And so sometimes there are minor changes, but most of the time uh, she nails it. You know, pretty, most illustrators I work with are really, very, very good like that. And your books have a message. Yeah, they're all very subtle. Tell us about Wonky Donkey. What's the message? Well, I mean, the message behind Wonky Donkey is it's okay to be different, which is a mm. good message. It's a great you message. Know, it's, yeah. And, in fact, I've had some amazing emails from parents. And, I mean, I've even had I had a caretaker in Levin's school come up to me and says, because of you, I can wear shorts. I'm like, what? And he said, because I've had a prosthetic leg for years, and I always thought it would scare the kids. And uh, he said, so in the summer, I'd always wear pants. In the winter, I always wear pants, of course. But he said, in the summer, I just wore pants. And But he said, when the kids were so excited about this wonky donkey book, and I'd say, oh, I've got one like him. And they went, what? And he'd pull his trousers up. And they were like, oh, wow, that's so cool, you know. And so he got over um, his... his um, I guess the self-consciousness or the fear that the kids were going to be worried or something like that. And so he started to wear shorts and, you know, it's great little stories like that. And, and there's because of the music, I, okay, I can connect with autistic kids a lot. So I get a lot of autistic parents uh, or, or I should say a lot of parents of autistic children writing to me and telling me how much their kids love my books. Um, yeah, it's it's. I get a lot of good feedback from that, from that area. So, because the story of Wonky Donkey is he's got three legs, three legs, and he's got a missing eye. Yes, he's a winky wonky donkey. Yeah. <laughs> and your but new book, big. which is out this week on Sunday, yes. it's being released. It's Stinky Wonky Donkey. Yes, the Stinky Wonky Donkey. So what's but happened to him uh, now? Well, we had the Dinky Donkey after Wonky Donkey. That was great. Then we had the Granny Granny Donkey. Then Wonky Donkey's big surprise. And in each one, we 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 uh, introduced a new family member. So Dinky Donkey was Wonky Donkey's daughter. Um, Granny Granny Donkey was the grandmother. Uh, Wonky Donkey's big surprise. Mum comes home. And this one is uh, we were able to use all the characters in the book. And so um, basically, Dad. Wonky Donkey convinces his daughter, it's a giant dad joke, he convinces his daughter that she loves all hooved animals wholeheartedly, you know, with all her heart. And that makes her hoof-hearted, he said. <laughs> so she, she goes around telling everyone, yes, I'm hoof-hearted, I'm hoof-hearted. And without realizing what she's actually saying, what it sounds like out loud. And then at the end, uh, she says to her dad, um, you know, before you've departed, dad, are you hoof-hearted? And he says, well, I'll have to tell you the truth. Here, pull my hoof. <laughs> That's a, lots of silliness, lots of fart. The kids love it, right? Oh, the kids love it. Yeah, they absolutely love it. And I've had really good feedback from the song already. So um, so you'd been playing that as a song for yes. some time. Yep. Yep. 
and you had adjusted it as you played it. Slightly, yes. And then what happens is I give the song to, the words of the song to my publishers, and then they, they adjust it. So there might be some tiny little grammatical error. Yes. Or there might be some uh, way of saying a thing that you normally wouldn't, you, you can say colloquially. Like you, you can say, I, I can't get no satisfaction colloquially, but to put it in a book using a double negative and yes, giving it, it doesn't look right. It's not an option. So yeah, so they help me as well. Um, so the crew at the editing team and uh, uh, Penny Scown and, and Lynette Evans, um, they all help me with those tiny little adjustments. And then I just, yeah, once we've got everything, something that everyone's happy with, then we turn it into a book. So how many books in total have you published? Um, 15 now. So that's one a year? Pretty much, yep. Wow. And you're going to keep going? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Got got some new titles, new ideas, new books up, up my sleeve. And it yeah. must be something because over 15 books, you've built up the team, your confidence in the team, you've built up the ability to work together and mm -hmm. to understand each other. So it must become a very pleasant experience. Yeah, most of the time it is, but sometimes we butt heads. But the, the thing that we come down to at the end of the day is that we all understand that we're only doing it. The reason why we're butting heads is because we want the best product possible. Mm. We want it best uh, artistically. We want it best grammatically, like I was saying. We want it best um, fun, the, the humor sort of side of things. Because uh, that's where I try and take my books. I try and get a giggle. Mm. I, I figure if the, if the kids are laughing and it's a fun read, they'll pick it up again and again and again. Mm. Yeah. Uh, where are your books marketed? Where are they sold into? Oh, you can get them in any good bookstore, independents and and big store and big bookstores. Like but are they sold in Australia? Oh yes, they know they're sold all over the world. Well, at least the Wonky Donkey book series is. The five wonky donkey ones that I've done, this latest one being that you know just released on Sunday, um, they're sold all over the world, Gosh. and not all of my other books are sold all over the world. So I've got one called Kaha the Kia, that's a very New Zealand centric one, mm -hmm. and so that's mm -hmm. only sold in New Zealand. Um, I've got another one called Eating, that's a self published one as well, and that's sold in Asia, Australia, New Zealand, and that's it. Mm. Uh, so you describe yourself now as a children's author. Yes. I'd say uh, when when I go through customs at the airport, I always put musician author. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. The great story is of the Scottish grandmother. Yeah. And so on YouTube and other channels, there's a Scottish grandmother reading Wonky Donkey with that great Scottish accent to a little infant, right? Yeah. So it's Janice Clark is the, the grandmother and Archer is the grandson. And that has been viewed, I hope the listeners are sitting down, something like 500 million times. Yeah, on all platforms around the world, half a billion times crazy eh? and she just was reading 
I mean, it's not orchestrated clearly. It's just Nana reading a book to an infant. Yes. And uploaded thinking half a dozen people might watch this. And it's it gone. As a, their, yeah, it was uploaded to their um, knitting group. James <laughs> <laughs> so Clark's knitting group. Now, that was a closed knitting group. There's, not everyone could see that. Only the people who were on the Facebook knitting group could see it. And then one of the ladies, and I've said to Fiona, now Fiona is the daughter who took the video, who surreptitiously videoed her grandmother reading to her grandson. She had read the book before, and she knew that this would tickle her mum's fancy. So she got the camera out. But they uploaded it to the Facebook thing, and then it was just one other lady who said, um, can I share it outside the face, outside the um, knitting Facebook group? And uh, the daughter went, yeah, of course you can. You know? And it was from that one share that it just went pop, 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 and half a billion views later. Crazy. You couldn't, you couldn't, the marketing team at Scholastic wouldn't believe it, right? No, no, no one could. You, you couldn't manufacture that if you tried. No. No, not it's, that. It's it has so to be real. organic to be it, that. And so real. Yeah. How what? Surreal is the debut studio. I got my phone talking to me about being real. Um, <laughs> that is. So that would have boosted your audience around the world like nothing else. Yeah. So between 2009 and 2018, the Wonky Donkey book had sold about roughly just under a million copies. That's including Asia because it was sold in Asia. It was sold in Asia. And I toured, I toured Asia. I toured Taiwan and China and uh, and Malaysia and Singapore and Thailand and you name it, Vietnam. And um, so between Australia and New Zealand and a few had sold in the UK, a few had sold in the USA. When I say a few, they'd printed about 75,000 and sold in the USA. Now, that sounds like a lot, and it is, but it's, it's nothing when you compare what's possible in the United States, you know. So And then so all up, it sold just under a million copies for all those territories. And then Janice Clark turned up. So that was in nine years, sold a million copies. And then Janice Clark does her thing. That video gets seen. And the following year, I, I, I sell a further three million. <laughs> <laughs> so that shows you the impact. Well, I, no one. I mean, does Annabelle Lang, Langbine really sell that many books? Oh, yeah. So she's no, selling around talking, the world. But we're talking about just in New Zealand, yeah? So the, ah. intro, the introduction where you're saying, hey, I'm the, the number one selling children's book author in New Zealand, is that's not sales outside of New Zealand. It's just sales within New Zealand. Three or four million is like a Jeffrey Archer book, right? Oh, well, look. For a time there, there was a three-week period where I was the number one selling author in the world. Yeah, across, I bet. A, across all genres. So I'd outsold Michelle Obama's autobiography, and I'd outsold Lee Child's new book. But no. It was, it was only for three weeks. <laughs> but I'll take it. 
but but it was stuck there. I mean, uh, it was it was definitely in two thousand and eighteen to two thousand and nineteen, the Wonky Donkey was the number one selling children's book in the world for sure. Yeah. Because, like, I know that Perhaps in New with Zealand, the exception of maybe Harry Potter or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know New Zealand. If you sell five thousand copies of a book, you're number one. Yes, you know. that's true. And you sold for four million of that one book. Well, no, that was that was between two thousand and eighteen and two thousand and nineteen. So two thousand nineteen, yeah. two thousand twenty, it sold another few million. Like it's it's sold quite a few million now. Yeah. Do you think it'd be ten million? Yeah, it's probably getting up there. I, I, that ten million is including all of my all fifteen of my yes. books. So maybe yes. it might be up around the mark of around eight to nine million or something like that. So for Scholastic Publishing, you'd be their number one. In New Zealand, yeah, and 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 for a time around the world it was definitely the number one. In fact in fact I got sent an article by a friend of mine who was uh uh in New York and working in the stock exchange, something you know uh quite quite a bit about. And um he said, Oh look, this article just came out, I had to I had to share it with you. And it was how Scholastic's share price, because they're a publicly listed company, had jumped by 3% on the backs of Harry Potter and the Wonky Donkey. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> so there was a financial um, a financial article written in the Times over there, and he sent it to me explaining how uh, the book had affected, in a positive way, um, Scholastic share price. And you've done uh, an edition of your stinky wonky donkey in Tereo. Not the stinky wonky donkey. No, the, the original wonky donkey. Yes, is, is now done a Tereo Maori version. And that How was did released, that happen? That was released about um, two and a half weeks ago for Maori uh, Language Week. And how it happens is, if you've got a hugely successful book in English, and you know everyone want uh, their book to be in other languages and obviously in New Zealand Tera Maori is one of them. So it was a no brainer really that we um that we reprinted it with uh we got um, some good translators in and then uh, reprinted it and it's now a book in Tera Maori. So did you sing the song uh, for it in Tera? I, I did not um but I'm getting coaching. Great. <laughs> I'm going to get and, some coaching. I've got a, a local guy here who's going to help me out, and there's another person who's going to help me out as well. Good on you. And what about other languages around the world? Yeah, it has been translated. It's been translated into Chinese, been translated into Albanian, Italian. Oh, yeah. But the thing is, though, the I'd like to hear you sing it in Chinese. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the good thing about uh, what I do with the music um, component of the book is that if you're learning English as a second language, you can put the CD on and learn to read without having to have a teacher there or a parent yes. there to just correct you because the kids can hear the sound wonky, spunky, and all these words, and they can play the music. And because it's uh, played in music, you've got that, um, you know, that mnemonic sort of, Yes. Like when you when you learn an alphabet, you're you're learning it in song A B C yes. D E F G makes it easier to remember. So that music component tree allows the book to be sold in English in a country like China because lots of Chinese people learn English, 
and the music helps them to learn it. Of course. Of course. So, That's you wonderful. know, um, so it, is, it has been translated into many languages, but equally it's probably sold more in those countries as an English book because of the music componentry. They can, yes. The kids can learn how to, to, to learn English. Tell me, Craig, is it a feature of other children's books that they're put to music in a song? No, no. Traditionally, it's children's books are children's books, and that's yeah. But Which there, is are, a- there are a few others out there. You know, I mean, one of the things that made me think of putting Wonky Donkey into a children's book was the song um, "There Was an Old Lady Who Swallowed a Fly." Mm. Now, that's always been a song, as far as I can remember. But then it got turned into a book. Mm. And the wheels on the bus go round and round. The bus go round and round. Exactly. So there are a lot of of, of children's. Uh, stories that are written in song, but traditionally, I'd say you know, good probably ninety five percent of children's picture books are not yes. written in song. Yeah. Now, I've got to say to listeners, if you're thinking about getting your grandkids or your kids a book to read, you can't do better than the Wonky Donkey series. They are fabulous books, as I said, my kids love them. I've watched uh, Craig perform at a local market here with kids, and you must get a lot of pleasure because the kids just it's gleeful, isn't it? There's nothing yeah. there's nothing more uplifting than kids the glee when they're enjoying something and yeah. partaking yeah. and singing along and when yeah. you say things like farting and they all giggle and laugh. It's nothing yeah. better to watch. And also the nature of my books, they're on the silly edge. You know, I was a yes. huge fan I was a huge fan of Spike Milligan growing up. Yes. And that creeps that that's sort of right on that edge of ridiculousness. Yes. Um, and um, the, when you perform like that as a performer, it's you've given license to the kids to do the same. Yeah. And then when the kids start acting silly, that's I mean, I, I there's but there's been gigs where I've had to look in another direction and not at a specific bunch of kids or a specific kid because I know if I do. They're going to make me laugh, and I'm not going to be able yeah. to sing a song. Yeah. So, you know, it's got to that point where I've had to look away so that I can finish the gig because I'm laughing. That's so, funny. You know, so um, I, I have a good time, and so do the kids. Oh, look, um, as I said, if you're wanting something for your kids or for your grandkids or for your neighbor's kids, uh, what age do you think this works best for kids? I mean, if you're reading to the child, you know, who can't read any age, you know, I mean, yeah. I started reading to my daughter when she was five, five to six weeks old. You know what I mean? Yes. I just picked her up and started reading to little, just little stories. Um, but right up, I mean, I've, I've had, look, I've had to play, I had to play at an 80 year old funeral. Wow. And, and the reason being is because that, that person who passed away, uh, his, favorite time was listening and reading the wonky donkey to his grandkids and he wanted his funeral to be a fun thing so so um you know i ended up playing at that funeral but the point being is that right up from i always say from eight months to 80 years old this, oh, there this, you go good for you yeah. and tell me have you been in touch with the scottish granny Yes, Janice Clark and I are good friends. In fact, in January, I flew her. Now, it's a misnomer that she's um, she lives in Scotland. She's from Scotland. She's from Ayrshire. But she lives in Queensland. 
so so um, that video was done in Queensland, and I flew her and her daughter and her grandson Archer and her sister, who was visiting from Ayrshire uh, in Queensland. I flew them over for ten days to Queenstown, and we did the big touristy thing: Ernstor, Milford Sound, jet boats, all that sort of palaver. Yeah, had a great time. And she couldn't believe it either, right? She'd be just dumbfounded. Oh yeah, and uh, of course they they made money from advertising from the video. Oh, on YouTube, of course. Yeah, yeah, YouTube and and all the other platforms. So how funny! So it was it was it was nothing massive, massive, but it's 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 something. Know, I'm sure it would have made a. I don't I don't know exactly how much they made, but half a billion. They've got to have made some money out of it. Yeah, yeah. Now the song for Stinky Wonky Donkey. We're going to play after this airs. Yes, I heard it. I can't get the song out of my head. It's like the wheels on the bus. Even when you want it out of your head, it's still there. That's good news. But it's a wonderful tune. You do. It's just in my head now. And I sing the words to myself. I I went out working and I was singing it. to. I could hear it playing in my head. (laughs) An actual fact, when I sang it, Craig, my voice and harmony was parallel to yours. Brilliant. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> I could hear it perfectly. It was beautiful. No one was around, and so I sang it quite loudly and fulsomely, but I know what happens from experience if anyone could should hear me. Yeah. But you have a – it's a duet. Yes. So I convinced my eight-year-old daughter, who can sing very well, to join me in the studio. And I, you know, I've got this thing in life called the eight P's of life, Proper preparation and perfect practice prevents a piss poor performance. I'm not sure if you yes. heard it before. Yes. So I, pre- I prepared her. We, we sung it heaps in my lounge here. I took her to the studio two weeks before we had the studio booked just to have a look around and meet the engineer. So it wasn't, she wasn't, you know, she knew what she was, the, the place that she was going to. Um, uh, I sung it with her. And then, and then when we were in the studio on the day, we just broke it up into little segments. So she only yes. had to sing one line or two lines. Yes. So it's a fantastic job. I was so proud of her. And, um, yeah, but I was just so happy with the result. And It makes the song. It yeah. absolutely makes the song. Yeah, I agree. Um, well, she's a wonderful, wonderful daughter. You should be very proud of her. Craig, uh, we're going to end on that song. Have you got anything else you'd like to share with listeners? Um, oh, I just uh, – I, I've actually just had a knee replacement. Yes. <laughs> had a brand new stainless steel knee put in last week. You're like that $6 million man. Well, the six, six pound dollar man. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but no, the, the, the irony being is I'm lying on my couch doing this interview at the moment uh, with 25 staples in my leg, which are getting taken out tomorrow, which I'm pretty excited about. Um, and how, how life is imitating art, and because you're the wonky donkey, wonky donkey, and it's his left leg and it's my left leg. Uh, he he's got a missing eye though, so I'm I, look. If I start missing an Be eye, careful. Yeah, you know he's a stinky wonky donkey. I've already got that down, Pat. Yeah, um, I know that from experience. Yeah. Well, you know the half half of his. It's an autobiography, really. Yeah, half of the adjectives in it uh, describe me. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No. Just. I mean. That aside, it's just quite interesting that this is happening. <laughs> what What is your injury from? Oh, look. I used to play a lot of rugby and basketball when I was a kid. 
and I blew my knees out in, once in rugby and once in basketball. And my left knee was done when I was 17 years old in that terrible stadium in Dunedin with the concrete floor and the rubber mat. Cold, big old, you know, that's, it's an ice rink yeah. now. That's what it should have always been. Um, and I blew my knee out on that court when I was 17. And 35 years later, continuing to play basketball and rugby, it just got to a point where I could hardly hardly use it anymore. Couldn't run. My eight-year-old daughter's faster than me. So I'm looking forward to being able to, for, for it to be useful again. That's, that's what I'm excited about. Good. Well, good luck with that. Good luck on the rehabilitation. Thank you for your time here today. But more particularly, thank you for bringing all that joy into kids, mums and dads, nannies and granddads, everyone, because not many of us get an opportunity in the work that we do to entertain and make people happy. No, no, they don't. And and I'm very grateful for that. But thank you, Rodney. I appreciate it. It's been lovely talking. And I'm looking forward to your next books. Me too. (laughs) <laughs> okay, thank you. Right. That was Craig Smith, the author of the Wonky Donkey series. They're wonderful books. Um, if you haven't seen them, get them, get the CD, listen to them. Your kids will love them. Your grandkids will love them. My kids love them. And uh, when Craig performs it, it is just something else for all the kids to see. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Thank you for stopping by. Thank you for listening. was a young donkey so cute and small Who loved every creature from tiny to tall I love every animal that there's no doubt I love them so much Dinky Donkey called out Really? Said Wonky Which do you love best? Which animals do you love more than the rest? I don't really know We Dinky confessed I never thought which I love more than the rest She hoared and pondered a while She shook her wee mane then With a big smile Right there, she said And donkeys that bray Stampede hogs out of the way I love hippopotamus, slippers and goats I love beautiful horses With smooth glossy coats With all of my heart I love lambs too Camels and antelopes and as Wonky listened, his face was deadpan, but he was devising an outrageous plan. Whose animals that you love so much? The reindeer, horses, camels, and such. They have one thing in common, and it's not their moves. Can you guess what it is? They, they all have hooves. You love hoofed animals with all your heart. That makes you hoof-hearted, he said, feeling smart. Who farted? Who farted? Without a doubt, I'm hoof-hearted. Dinky called out. But Daddy then prayed aloud happily. Is your granny hoof-hearted? He asked with glee. Off Dinky trotted and was back in a tick. Daddy says she's her father that had a giggling fit. Laughing some more, Wonky then said, Go and ask Mummy, she's out in the shed.
he ran, then back she darted. Yes, Daddy. She said. Bobby's also half-hearted. <laughs> I'm glad she's admitted it. He said with a guffaw. Think his dad was now rolling around on the floor. Then he slowly got up, saying, "Oh no, no more!" And he headed outside through the stable door, catching him quickly before he departed. Dinky asked, "Daddy, are you half-hearted?" <laughs> well, Dinky said, "Wonky, to tell you the truth and to answer your question, here, pull my hoof." Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. Here on Reality Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Remember, you can send me a text, 2057. You can email me, inbox at realitycheck.radio. Oh, my goodness, I think we've had Ali Cook on more than any single living human being, other than, I guess, our regular one, Wally Richards, our gardening professor. But, Ali, it's good to talk to you this morning. Yeah, it's always great to be on with you, Rodney, and talk to the like-minded, as it were. Oh, so like-minded. But we have such a lot to cover because you have been a busy, busy lady, and I'm so proud of you, and I feel proud to know you. Much respect to you because um, you stand up and you're very brave and you lead, and I, I, I respect that enormously, Ali. But first up, before we get too far, How's your son doing? Your son is vex injured. He had myocarditis after the jab. He was a truck driver, I believe. I think he's 26 years old. Yeah, well, 27 now. Another year goes past. Um, 27. He How is he doing with his injury? He's still on medication to keep it at bay, but it's still there. It's not It's not gone away. It, 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 it comes back, as he referred to it last night. I spoke to him last night, and um, he said it comes back to haunt me. Uh, every few weeks he gets more pains and it comes back and he takes more anti-inflammatories. It's just an ongoing battle, really, and we still haven't seen a cardiologist um, and still no ACC. And, you know, it's just... The system's broken, Rodney, really. The system is broken already for everybody and then it's even more broken when, you, when you've got vaccine injury because it doesn't want to recognise you. It's terrible. Um He's able to work somewhat. Yeah, he works. He works because he's on medication that keeps the inflammation down. And so, what a, you know, terrible, um, what, a, what a terrible, shocking thing to have happen. And what a terrible and shocking thing 
that you are, what's that word? You're sort of not noticed, you're blanked, you are a non-person and your injuries aren't real. You're sort of ghosted, aren't you? And and the family's ghosted. Silence, gaslit, put behind, like they just, and then people don't know how to handle it. You know, people don't know how to deal with it because they've been trained in their head and the propaganda to not believe that vaccine injury exists. And, well, you and I know, but when when you're suffering it or a member of your family's suffering it, it's very, very real. Um, And, you know, you feel, it leaves you feeling quite sort of, desperate really because she just everywhere you turn there's just no help and as long as we don't recognize the vaccine injury, vaccine injury um, we're never going to see research into into treating people like my son but it's not going away oh I've been going to campaign meetings along the way with Sue and I've met so many people that have got young people the same age as my son that have got the same thing so it's like now, it's not we'll it's get not on. Un- uncommon I just want to run through a few things. You're a musician. You're a publicist. You have had that wonderful parliamentary petition, which I adore, and we want to hear about where that is. You have been promoting the movie, which we need to hear about. You have released a new song, which I want to hear about. And you are standing for our parliament, which I want to hear about. But a little bit of excitement last night for you because you went along to a campaign meeting on the West Coast. I'm campaign campaign manager for Sue Gray um, for uh, Outdoors and Freedom Party, so I'm looking after down here and um, so we've been going off to campaign meetings, but of course I've been sort of gone between that and the movie and the music, and so I hadn't been at a campaign meeting where Damien O'Connor was present until last night. Now, but he's your local MP, right? He is, and I've known him for many, many years. So pre all of this, like I was bleating at him years ago about New Zealand on air. That's another another whole story about them giving money to multinational record companies for the last, you know, 15, 20 years. And um, and I had local issues, and I'd catch up with him, and he put some money into my albums when I was crowdfunding, and we got along pretty good, you know. Mm. Um, well, then, he's been an MP for the West yeah. Coast forever, right? Yeah, yeah, he has been. And and I have backed him as an MP for, for Tasman West Coast. So, you know, but then... I'm guessing I'm guessing he's been an MP since nineteen ninety-three. That's 30 years. Yeah, it, it would be. He's been he's been an MP. Because there was Margaret time. Moyer on the West Coast for National, and she yeah. was lovely. She was one term. Kerry Burke before her, and then Margaret Moyer, and then I think Damien, but I think he lost it a couple of times but got in on the list. Yeah, he lost it. He lost it once um, to the national MP, and I've forgotten. Maureen Pugh? Arkenberg. No, no, it was like a, a German name, but I can't remember it okay. now. What is it? Arkenbold. Arkenbold. Oh, Chris Arkenbold. Arkenbold. Oh, yeah, my goodness. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I loved it. Chris Arkenbold. He was an MP yeah. when I was an MP, and he was such a gentleman. Yeah. 
I so enjoy. But I have to say, I've always had a lot of time for Damien O'Connor because um, Helen Clark despised him because he was too heterosexual and too white and too yeah, conservative. The gays. Yes, that. <laughs> that's right. He called I, them a gaggle I, of gays. Gaggle of gays. Yeah. So um, he was a good West Coast star. But tell me about. So you, it's not like he doesn't know you. Tell me what happened last oh. night. Well, so it was um, first of all so brought up that Nanaya Mahuta was overseas signing up documents during a caretaker government that it was um you know undemocratic for her to be doing such right. things while we're in a caretaker government. Which he said was, which he said was rubbish, um, and then she read from a ombudsman letter that a lot, a lot of them have been trying to get hold of the Pfizer contract, and this was a letter that came back. And I mean, the thing is, like, we don't have the New Zealand Pfizer contract, but hey, we've got the South Africa one. I think we've got the Brazilian one as well, and they've all got this this um, clause five point five that basically the, the government has to indemnify Pfizer and. Pfizer admits in 5.5 of its contract that um, it, it knows that people are going to be hurt and that there's no long-term data and that it's totally, you know, they, they basically admit everything weird and said about it. So anyway, Yes, I've seen that. I've seen that online and that's official. Yeah. And it's that they don't know about long-term effects. No. And, and so, all the stuff yeah. about it being safe and effective, the Pfizer contract says Pfizer doesn't know whether it's safe and safe. So anyway, they wouldn't, the New Zealand guys, they won't release the contract, even though we've seen contracts from other countries. But Grant Robertson was forced by the uh, ombudsman to be in the interest of what was it in the interest of transparency to release some statements. And Sue read that statement um, and basically reflected 5.5 of the contract. And I was filming and I felt the tears come up because I just was looking at Damien and I was thinking, you know, You've known me all those years. You know my son's vaccine injured. You didn't even respond to me when I asked you to present my petition. You know, I was just it was just welling up. And then he laughed. He actually laughed at what Sue read out. And I just went, don't you laugh, Gabriel. And I just, I just burst into tears. I just lost the plot. And I just said, I'm sorry, Sue. I can't stay in the same room. And I just, I walked out and I, Probably howled for about five minutes. Quite a few. Oh, I, I got lots I, of man hugs. Lots of guys came. I out feel like howling. So, I I feel like howling um, just listening to that account. And I just, I really just howled, and I just said, you know, I just can't believe that somebody that I called a friend once would actually laugh, laugh at knowing people are injured and killed. Like I'm just like. You what know, do you think that was? Was it a nervous laugh? I don't know. I zoomed right in on him. I've put it up on video now because I had the video running. Of course, you can't see me. You can only hear me once I walk out, but I didn't realise I had the selfie stick in my hand and I was throwing my toys out of the cot. And I walked out with the I walked out with the selfie stick in my hand, but I did catch I did catch the change in his expression. With me saying, "Don't you laugh, Damien?" He just went from smiling to like, "Oh, to an old, old God look on his face," you know, like, "Oh, he knew what was coming." Um, I just, yeah, I just sort of let him have it from the back of the room and just ran out of the room crying. I mean, I just the mother came out of me, and I guess I'm tired from the campaigning and everything else because I've travelled a lot, and I just 
because normally, you know me, I'm like a pit bull and gnarly as I don't He, he knows your son is injured. He may not accept yeah. it was the vaccine, but he knows he's injured. He knows that you think it's the vaccine. Well, it's five hours after the shot in an ambulance, so it's pretty obvious, and he's diagnosed yes. by his doctor as vaccine injured. So it's you know, there's no question that that's what's done it to him. Um, not I even just a can't, in the eyes of the doctor. Uh, I, I just can't. Like I know Damien, I, you know, probably not as well as you, but you know, he's a pleasant guy. He doesn't he he doesn't give offence. Um. But I just can't, I can't understand any of these MPs, including my old party, the ACT Party, I struggle to understand their behaviour. Well, it's, yeah, I mean, really, it's just ultimate denial. I guess if they admit that we exist, then they admit their culpability to the responsibility that our family members are dead and injured. If they admit that we exist, it puts them in a legal firing line, I guess. You know, um, the um, what do you think? What is worse? This is a tough question, but what is worse for you and your family? The injury or the denial of the injury? That's a hard question because the injury, I mean, there's a lot of people that are a lot worse off than my boy, but um. The denial of it, I guess, is bigger in a way because I know the denial means there's no help coming. There's no, there's no, there's not going to be any research into mRNA vaccine injury as long as they don't accept that it exists. You know, because mm-hmm. if they accept that it exists, then then people can be put to work, and that's what I would love is for them to put money into putting people to work to find out what it's done to people's hearts. Mm-hmm tissue and what they're going to do about turning it around, you know? Like, and, and that is did, there, if there's anything they can do, you know? And in this particular case, on top of the denial, you've had a good friend and your local MP who represents you in Parliament laugh. Yeah, that's, you know, and that's the thing that really, and, and, and I've lost a lot of good friends too. It's like people, it's like you say, you say your kid's injured. Like, if your kid, like, my son was in a car accident about four years before, and I, and I actually put his weakness in giving in to the vaccine down to that because he'd mm-hmm. overcome great challenges. He'd learned to walk with a partially paralyzed leg. He walks with a brace now permanently. He's lucky he didn't die in that car accident. And um, so, you know, I've seen people's empathy. When that happened, there was empathy, you know, when he had a car accident and he lost the use of his leg. But then when he gets vaccine injured, it's like people are, like, looking all around the room. They want to look everywhere except at you because it's like they just don't even want to accept that the person is vaccine injured. Our, our, minds, our minds are funny things, aren't they? Because we can... We have to protect our psyche or something. We have to yeah. protect ourselves because, as you say, it's hard to imagine collectively all these MPs and all these people going along with it, even against all the evidence now. But to allow a chink and to accept your boy was injured is to then accept that you were party, even as a citizen, 
or as you know a human being to a monstrous evil that propagandized people to take the jab and then mandated the jab so people would lose their job and their house and then you can't admit that you were so wrong and that your position that you so ferociously believed has resulted in death and disease. Yeah. It's, and it's, if you, as, uh, as it's a hard thing else, for a good person yeah. to accept. Yeah. And the other thing is, if you look now, I mean, right through this, around the world, if they've all been in lockstep with each other, now, now it's the same, the same as we saw, you know, Chris Hutton stand up and say, oh, no one was ever forced. He did that a few weeks ago. If you look around the around the world, that's happening in every parliament now. I looked at America this morning where someone was denying, no, no one was ever forced. You know, So now they're trying mm. to back away from the fact that they were hanging people's jobs over their heads, your job or the jab, whichever you want. Oh, you know, there's and just no the choice s- there. It's like if someone's holding a gun to your head, it's like it's not yeah. your fault you got robbed. You know, it's like, And the social pressure. Got- yeah, the social yeah. pressure, like I, I didn't have a job I could lose, but the yeah. social pressure from friends and colleagues and neighbours and family that you were like an, a, a baby killer if you would yeah. and And people were very rude and very certain. It was very dark. Well, I have to say... Um, you know a funny thing? Um, Just sitting here now in hindsight, looking back over it, I can't believe I feel this, but I actually feel sorry for Damien O'Connor because I know he's a good man. And it's possibly his goodness that just stops him from seeing it. And I, I, I look, I can't excuse or explain that laughter, but I would hate to be in his position. You know, I'd hate to be in David Seymour's position where I, or Chris Hipkins, or Chris Luxon's, where I promoted this jab, and I was clearly wrong to do so. And people have yeah. terribly, I would hate to, I couldn't, I, I, you know, I mean. Maybe it's too big, maybe it's too big for them to face, and that's why they won't face it, because it's just too big for them to face. Well, could you face doing that to someone? No, but I wouldn't be sucked in by it in the first place. I'd look at no. the data and go, wait a minute, this is brand new. You've got to, you know, you've got to guarantee that all the safety things are there before we push this on the nation. That's what I would have done as a politician. Yeah. You know? And it wouldn't matter who was, you know, who who came along and said, we're going to pay you this and be like, piss off. You know, because they, when, they when, need people who don't give in to lobbyists. And, um, when yeah. you look across the people that refused the jab, I can't detect any sort of characteristic socioeconomic politics. There's green voters, Maori Party voters, ACT Party voters, and poor people, rich people, educated people, uneducated people. It's just a hodgepodge of people. And funnily enough, I've been wondering if it's a sort of genetic condition that there are always in society a group of people who won't bow down to authority and that maybe there's a sort of selection pressure that there's genes for conformity and societies societies yeah. run because a lot of people just will conform automatically. But it's handy uh, in times of extremity to have a few 
who refuse because yeah. to me it was a no-brainer the whole thing um yeah. and it's i i didn't i mean it wasn't the data that made my mind up it was the fact that i reacted to the heavy-handedness and yeah. the fact that the collective all went a, along with it it was beyond to me the data it was no <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, it was no. yeah, I know, we must, it was yeah. like we're all doing this, and you say, No, I'm not doing that. I, I mean, yeah, I'm not a crowd person either, you know. Like, I don't, yeah, I just it's a funny thing, isn't it? And I mean, look, I re I'd like to think it was all the data, but it was more deep inside my very being. Well, I think it's instinct, you know, it's instinct, instinct. like you know that that's not right. And so no. I'm like, like what I've learned now, I had the 60th birthday the other day. That was pretty Did you really? Yeah. So I was, um, and I got, had 3,000 people at Parliament singing me happy birthday before I oh, sung to them. Oh, we've got so to that cover was, that protest. Uh, uh, let's, yeah. let's first of all cover off where were you at with your wonderful petition? Yeah, so the petition, um, they came back to me. I've got until November the 5th to put in my reply to them. They're still at trying to make me remove allegations that the Medical Council are silencing doctors um, and removing the NZDSOS letter. So I'm about to go back on them with that. And, of course, it will be the new government that will be the new petitions committee right. that will eventually hear it. So that's kind of got in a way. Um, and then, um, yeah, so that's the main thing. And I think the last thing I pointed out to them was the, was the three decisions of the three doctors who've been through the district court and one against the medical council. So I said, no, um, I'm not going to remove it because here's three decisions yes. from the Wellington District Court that have overturned the decision of the medical council. So therefore, um, I refuse to remove it. So I'm, I'm going to stay with that because good for you that's a big part of it a big part of it is that they are silencing they are silencing doctors and so that's that's a big part of it so i'm not going to turn that down what was interesting last night i'll just stem back to that is that maureen q came up to me after she was the only person other than sue that, that you know of oh, sorry and richard from the ormiston from the money free party but who came up said are you okay you know at the next meetings we had two meetings yesterday and she said, I just want to show you this text from Shane Retty. And it was a text from Shane Retty on her phone that was saying he was pushing for a broadening of the current rural commission oh, nice. of inquiry. He feels that, 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 that the it didn't mention the vaccine efficacy not being in the terms of reference, but he said that it's impossible for this is a whitewash inquiry without the references being extended. Everything has right. to be looked at. So I think um, National is now pushing for the terms of reference, and I saw David Seymour say something about it. They're a bit careful because they're still careful about the vaccine, and I mean, David just doesn't believe there's vaccine-injured people. He told me that when he presented his petition. He said, I I'll present your petition because I believe in freedom of speech, because he was made to, right? None of them would present my petition, but somebody with money I know got on the phone. This is David sure Seymour. Yeah. So, so David, so, somebody, that somebody with money went to two MPs, one in the National Party, and David Seymour and said, "One of you has got to present this petition." So they had pressure put on them from a businessman, and then they presented the petition. But he told me in the same breath that he didn't believe in the premise of my petition. He didn't believe that the vaccine was not 
safe and, and effective. So, um, yeah, so, you know, so he presented it. So, but anyway, I mean, that's my hashtag no vote for the five and the hive. Um, no, no vote for the five and the hive. So, David yeah. Seymour's position is that no one has been injured or killed by the vaccine. I think so. I, because he said he didn't agree with the premise of my, um, he didn't agree with my petition. And my petition's calling for the safety and efficacy of the COVID-19 vaccine. Um, Unbelievable. He said, but that thought that my petition was untrue, even though it, even though it's quite clear that there's no other medicine in history that's had that many reactions and that we've got 64,000 on the database. Well, and, and we've got... We've Rory Nandid, um, you know, coroner's report. Coroner, um, pathologist saying um, Rory yeah. Nan died because of the vaccine. I yeah, mean, yeah, how yeah. arrogant. So, oh. Anyway, that's that's them, and that's why I'm I'm working with outside parties. And So I what happens wish... on November the 5th with your petition? Um, so that's the next point back to the petition staff. I should be just about up to presenting it then great uh, now, so then they'll then it'll get presented to a uh, to the new petitions committee which i hope somebody like maureen Pugh is actually on you know well isn't um, maureen Pugh a breath of fresh air and how disgusting was it when she spoke up about climate change that that chris luxon was so rude to her telling her that she needs to go away and yeah, read a book well that's that's the trouble you see that's and that's one of the things sue's running here for west coast tasman and that's one of the things about about um, that is, yeah, it's just she's got the thumb screws on her. She can't say yeah. anything. She's yeah. actually sort of like one of us in the wrong party, actually. She's yes. actually a good woman. She's a good she's woman. A good woman so she's I actually, she's one of, the, in fact, of everybody inside that building, she's probably the best person. Yes, well, when, when, when Chris Luxon said that to her, he was saying that to a lot of us because I agreed with her 100%. And he's like derogatorily telling me to go away and read a book too. Oh, anyway, the great movie, which I haven't seen. Tell me all oh, about how that's going. Oh, well, I won't, I don't, won't do any spoilers, but um, interesting, interesting, interesting. So that's, you know, been blacklisted pretty much by mainstream media until stuff the, the film reviewers finally did a review. And there was a few good words in there that got grabbed and used his name. But um, yeah, blacklisted, but went to number one on the grossing box office and is in number 10 still in the grossing box office uh, for New Zealand films. And, um, and yeah, lots of people have been seeing it and more theatres have been taking it since they've seen the box office thing go up on it. You know, so they realise if they take it, a lot of people are going to see it. Fantastic movie. Just a real step up from production-wise probably um, from some of the other movies. Because, mm -hmm. you know, in New Zealand we've actually had sort of Five movies out, I think now on on the wow. on the protest and on vaccine injury and you know silent no more Memorial Day silence that features Peter Williams. Um, uh, we came here for freedom one and two, you know, and then we've got this one, which is just kind of like a step up. But really uh, interesting seeing the reaction of the audience at the premiere every time Jacinda came on the screen or whatever, it was like, boo, and every time the portal lose the guys were there from the protest or something else, would be like, yay, and then boo, then yay. Ah, and I'd love I thought that. it was just, 
I just thought it was the premiere, but apparently it's just everywhere. Everywhere oh, people wow. react like that. The audience reacts right the way through the movie, every, everywhere it's How gone. wonderful. So I'd love very, to go. It, so it's very powerful. So look out for it um, wherever you can. And it was quite interesting because um, stuff were going to do a hit piece on it, and they got hold of the director, and they went back and forth in an email exchange where – Stuff first of all said it was disinformation. We were going to make a print a movie of a story on your film as being disinformation, and then the director sort of went back and went, "Well, what is disinformation?" And then she came back and said, "Well, what's your movie about?" <laughs> so then, then we gave that email train to Chris Lynch Media, who wrote an article <laughs> um, saying how stuff stuff were going to do a hit piece on a movie they'd never seen, and then. That movie, uh, that piece never came out. So we front footed them, mm. and basically they never they never printed. Um, and interestingly, the other day I was sitting there with Sue when we went to the Wellington protest, and I was walking up the street up the front with Brian and Sue, and um, then I saw the you know at a big press pack right in front of us, you know, cameras facing back at us, and the first stuff article came out, and I went, I said, what's wrong with them? This is actually really like quite good coverage like they look a bit sick and then I got down the bottom and it was the same reporter that had been front footed and I was like oh and I knew she went to the movie in Wellington she actually went to the movie in Wellington and still never printed anything but there there she was reporting positively on the protest in Wellington and I thought maybe the movie had some impact on her or maybe she thought twice about slandering people before you've made a decision on something you know which Mm. So now, I thought that was quite interesting. <laughs> tell me, bio. tell me about your candidacy and um, your party. Tell me all about your decision to stand. And I feel as though I've been going around the uh, citizen parties, and I haven't got to Sue or Brian yet, and I want to. But tell me, yeah. you'll get an extra extra push. Tell me all about you standing in the party. So, um, okay, so I'm. With the Outdoors and Freedom Party, I'm a board member there. So, um, and you've so been I there was, like before this election? Uh, yeah, yeah, I have been before this election. So okay. I've been there about three years or something, or two years as a board member, I think now. Um, so I decided to run, mm-hmm. and rather than run, because I'm in the West Coast Tasman area and I knew Sue would be strong here, um, I ran in the mayoral campaign and got a few thousand votes in that. Right. And I thought, yeah, nah, I'm going to let Sue run the West Coast Tasman because I wanted her to run an electorate I felt that she had the best chance in, and this mm-hmm. is my electorate, so I could be of great help to her here. And so um, in the combination of parties, we put together an umbrella party. Sue tried. She tried so hard. She travelled this country. She spoke to every leader of every minor party. She was flying from one end to the other, um, we had the Democratic Alliance who started another umbrella party. So if people were resistant to Brian, they could go in that. That had a very nice constitution and very much what the freedom movement wanted as well. But nobody wanted to join together. And everybody tried right until Rip Day to make all those small political parties join together. And we were unsuccessful. So mm-hmm. we ended up with the only ones under umbrella being Brian, ourselves, Yes, Aotearoa and Vision, of course, which is Hannah's um, uh, party, Hannah Hannah's party. And um, and I must say, I was the last person to fall. So 
I, because of Bailey, because my son being vaccine injured and because of the rumours around it being used as a vaccine car park, you know, the Destiny Church being used as a vaccine centre, I had to be reassured in paperwork and everything that there was no way was that used as a vaccine centre. That was very, very important to me. I and didn't also, know that. So, so, yeah, so there was rumours about. Isn't yeah, this terrible? Dying. It's terrible. It's terrible. And it never was. Because I'll tell you the one thing. First of all, Brian and Hannah Tamaki are four generations of unvaccinated family. Grandma, wow. granddad, children, grandchildren. Nobody's had it, right? Okay. So, like, they're non vaxxers. So, they, I saw a letter that went from Destiny to the, uh, Medical Centre, which has many medical centres all around Auckland, but I think its base is there at Destiny. I'm, I'm pretty sure of that. And it was a letter that, that went and said, you're not to use the car park, even though they lease the car park, they lease these at Destiny Church, you're not to use it for a vaccine centre. So they were real clear that they didn't want it used for that. It was used as a testing centre because it's out by the airport and lots of people around there had to be tested just to go to work. So it was mm. used as a testing centre, not used as a vaccine. And then there was all this negative stuff about Brian, you know, and I have got to know them. Mm-hmm. And the people I've got to know, I am amazed with. I never knew about Manor. I did not know that he was mm. turning, that these big girly guys that you saw at the Destiny Church, I mean, to me, they were just blue. They looked like criminals, but they're not. They're following God. I'm like, what happened? <laughs> what happened is Brian Tamaki happened. So he's taken these people who were like jail, you know, jailbait, like terrible criminals, and he's turned their lives around. And I'd rather they follow Jesus than follow me up the street with a knife. So, yes. um, you know what I mean? Like, I am all for what he's done, and he's turned all these lives around. Then I heard the stories about you know, him taking money from the church and profiting himself and everything. And then I realised he has never taken a one red cent for the Man Up or Legacy programs that they run for men and women. It's all been done from church tithings, the whole lot. And then as those people become more stable in their lives, where they're becoming good fathers and good husbands and good contributing members of society, then they help the next layer of people come out of their criminal life and turn their lives around. And the work that they've done, they walk the walk. And for all the hate they take from everyone, he has zero hate for other people. Like, it's just, the guy just loves other people. I'm just, I'm blown away. I'm not a churchy person. I'm not, I'm, I'm not. And, um, but I'm highly impressed by those two. Do you and think? I, I am comfortable standing alongside them. Great. Do you think Brian yeah. would come on my show? I think Brian would love to talk to you, Rodney. Well, He's can a you good guy? Can you yep. uh, reach out to him? Yep. And tell him I'd love to have him on, and I'll also have Sue on. Because I think, I, I think there might be, I think there might be something about Sue and okay. Brian coming on together, and I don't know whether that's you on RCR or someone else, but I'll okay. definitely pass well, that on to Brian. I'd, he would I'd love, love to come back. Yeah. I'd love to have Brian on. You mentioned it to him. And if he's doing it with someone else on RCR, I will still do it. Okay. All right. And Because right. I've got a funny story to tell him. Okay. Because my 94-year-old mother wanted to ride one of on the back of one of his motorcycles to the protest oh. and, 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 and be a 
be a motorcycle girl because she was so angry. She, yeah. she, she, she's died since, but she so hated Jacinda Ardern. Oh my God, my mother and those and that lockdown stuff. My mother He's so hated it. Her and, Harley. I know. <laughs> I said, I look, I'll try and contact him, and I thought it'd be as funny as a fight that my mother would. She would hop on the back of that motorbike. She so wanted to go to those protests because yeah. she saw what that lockdown was doing to the elderly firsthand. Oh, it was terrible, terrible. I mean, so it was disgusting. Suffering. Now, tell me. Yeah. Um, so you're standing. So are you standing as a list only person? Yes, I'm number, you... I'm, I'm number six. I'm number oh, six wow. on the list. Yeah, oh, so wow. if we get 5%, I'm in. Good. And my area of interest, the same as Winston Peters' recent um, – Broadcasting. <laughs> recent – Yes, broadcasting. I thought when he said that the other day, I thought, oh, yeah, okay, if I got in and you got in, I'll come and help you do the paperwork on that. Um, well, he'll need he'll need someone to do all the paperwork. I know Winston. Winston, <laughs> um, so, let's just yeah. say, Winston's the opposite of Brian Tamaki because Brian Tamaki, I know, uh, walks the talk. Um, yeah. Mr. He Peters is talk. more talks the talk. talk, talk. Um, yeah. Oh, well, good, yeah. good. Yeah. So, so good for you. Broadcasting is my interest. And, I mean, I've been – the interesting thing is I've been standing up against – I've been outspoken. I was practically blacklisted by New Zealand on air, which is why I took my career across to Australia 10 years ago because mm. I couldn't get any funding here at all because I'd spoken out about the fact they were giving funding to um, – I was spoken out about the fact they were giving funding to multinational record companies. They were giving funding to Sony, Warner Brothers. EMI, you know, they were giving, our taxpayer money was going there, and yet if you didn't have one of those record companies, you had an independent record company, you couldn't get any money off them. So I was blacklisted, so I basically went, well, I can't get on here, I've got to go and do a career in Australia. So I didn't. I just stepped aside from that and went over to Australia and, and got quite a bit of success over there, and, you know, I still released my things here, but was on the radio over there and was doing stuff over there. Um, and so I, yeah, so I, so New Zealand on air, uh, is a body that I've long since complained about. And mm. then look who, look who distributed the public journalism fund. It was New Zealand on air that, that gave out the public journalism fund, um, whereby they had to, the press had to basically comply with the COVID rules and comply with the, the, uh, climate narrative to get the money. So, um, and now recently in Chris Lynch Media, he's uncovered um, through OIAs that they were actually buying time on the 6 o'clock news. Not 30-second yes. adverts, but yes. actually whole blocks of the news where they were saying which climate experts would be yes. interviewed. So they've actually, there's only one name for that. When your government is buying sections of editorial and of um you know, the broadcasting time on the news, that's propaganda. That's propaganda, what that is. Uh, and so there's no other there's no other explanation. So now, the only I, way to stop that is the Broadcasting Act, is to yeah. change the Broadcasting Act, get into the Media Council, get into the Broadcasting Standards Authority and clean it out of its bureaucrats, put new people in, put rules in place about telling unbalanced stories, about not showing with both sides of the stories, 
that they're going to need laws to make them be the force of state again. And the other thing is I saw them through funding take funding away from small television stations which broke Hamilton TV, broke CTV, like basically they took the funding away. So those small stations couldn't get community television funding anymore. And so they killed them. They basically <laughs> killed community television in New Zealand. So I'd like to see funding go to people like RCR, the platform. You know, yeah. I'd like to see those those well, independent news agencies be allowed to be gaining some nice. funding to help. And and multinationals be actually if you're a multinational company, you are not allowed government funding in our country. Bang. Full stop. Okay. You're an overseas owned. Goodbye. Now tell me, this might be a bit late to be asking this, but Love what you're saying. Uh, Sue Gray and Brian Tamaki are the leaders, co-leaders, yeah. are they? Yeah. What's the name of the party? Freedoms NZ. Freedom NZ. Oh, phew. I felt Freedoms, a bit silly. Freedoms. Freedoms, Freedoms NZ. With an, S. With, a S, with an S on the end. Freedoms, Freedoms NZ. NZ. So we can give yeah. our party vote to Freedoms NZ, NZ. and get yeah. Ali Cook into Parliament. Now tell me. And Sue Gray, and, and Sue Gray, Su- and Donna Pukere Phillip. Great. Now, yeah. you had a wee protest up at Parliament. We, we did the other day on my birthday. Well, it's the day after my birthday. I was on the convoy. We did a convoy of courage that went through from Cape Reinga all the way to um, all the way to Wellington. And, and how did uh, that go? I was good. Like, uh, first of all, the media, there was a picture of of Brian, uh, Hannah, Sue, and myself at the front, walking, walking at the front of the, um, you know, the procession, and it had hundreds of protesters written across the top of it, and I was like, oh, here we go, lies, 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 lies. I reckon I'm pretty good at looking out into a crowd, being an event organizer. I can go, yeah, that's, and I, I reckon there was about three thousand there. Wow. Yeah, and and there was, yes, there were a lot of people from the Destiny Church movement and Brian's movement, but there was also a lot of others. I saw a lot yeah. of others there as well that were at the protest, and we were walking around the grounds afterwards, like, looking at – we can never look at the grounds the same again. We're like, no. going, oh, there's where, the, there's where Linda's Health Forum tent was, and there was the massage tent, and the Hare Krishnas were feeding us over there. And it was like, you, you, it was really good to be back. Like, everyone that went that was at the Wellington protest was really like, wow, it was good to be back. This you is know? our place. This yeah, is our place. Yeah, yeah. Uh, good for you. And what was the protest protesting? Well, first of all, we were about the UN conference being held in New, Ze- in New Zealand. So that with Ashley Bloomfield and everything. So they decided to move it. So we forced them to move it to an online conference instead of at Parliament because right. they because of because of us coming, us dangerous, you know. <laughs> Ninety <laughs> percent of them Christian insurrection. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so um, so um, that was and and also standing up against the sexualisation of children in schools. Now I'm quite, and this is where we don't, as Sue says, we agree on some things. We don't necessarily agree on everything, but we do agree with Brian on this. We do agree that we shouldn't be having that kind of sexualisation of children no. inside schools. There's no Disgusting. place for it. And I think, I mean, my own son who's vaccine injured, you know, he's he's looking at getting married and they're looking at having children and stuff. And they're like, we're going, wow, like, um, 
one of us is going to have to give up work, mum, to homeschool because there's no way we're putting our kids. We're not going to have our daughter in a toilet with little boys coming in. No. You know, it's like like we're not no. going to like we're not going to send our kids to school when they're being taught about transgenderism. You know. When they're when they're actually prepubescent, you know what I, I mean. Know. Like it's kids aren't even supposed to be thinking about sex at no. like eight or nine. It's not no, even Rob, supposed to cross they, their radar. It's not even supposed to cross their radar, and they're pulling this into schools. And you know, you can go and do what you want as an adult. I've had gay friends. I mean, I was at lay girls in the eighties. You know what I mean? Like all this mm. sort of stuff about. Oh, come on. Come on, you know, like nobody cared about it. Like now it's like all divided, like game straights, like Marty and Pakia, backs and unbacks. There's like division, 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 division. And um, yeah, so that, so that was all, that was part of that, it. They're um, having us hate each other. Yes. When actual fact, it's them we should be hating. Correct. That's exactly we, it. So, we don't hate Maori. We don't hate the vaxxed. We no. don't hate the unvaxxed. What we do no. hate are those tin pot dictators who would terrorize us at the drop well, of a hat. It's kind of like, I call it trigger words. It's kind of like anti-vax is a trigger word. Yes. Co-governance is a trigger word. Climate change denial. The tamakis. I won't even refer to Brian and Hannah as the tamakis <laughs> because I, I think it's like a set of trigger words where they use that to imprint what people think about things. And co-governance is a real interesting one because I've been involved in property development over the last 10 or 15 years. I, I worked as a PA for a big property developer here in, in my region. And I've been dealing with iwi monitors and Māori across every development. They're across every development in the country. Like, And they have been for years. To say that Māori have had no say mm. is completely wrong. Every mm. council have their local iwi. That, and if they go no to something, it's no. And it's been that way for, like, years. So it's kind of like I thought our Indigenous relations were brilliant until the United Nations stuck their big nose where it wasn't wanted. And they've stuck in with their unripped thing, and now they're kind of like pushing down on people, and people are pushing up against it. And really, um, it's so stupid, because like Māori, local Māori of that particular region have worked with their councils for decades mm. on, on every on every development. And in fact, there's been a few developments where I've not wanted them to happen, and it's been Māori that have actually stopped it happening by pointing out a few things if it's got, you know, significant area or whatever to Māori and then they can just actually put the brakes on something just like that. And so to say that we need them to have co-governance of everything, well, it actually sort of already exists because they've mm. got, uh, there's also the kaitiakia of the land, you know, the care of the land of the tangata whenua and like, I just sort of felt like the three waters, for example, um, Donna Pukere Phillips has a really good description of that. It's like disregarding everyone else and creating four great big iwis, yes. you know, like and, and pushing everybody else to the side. And I, and I did see that during the local body elections. Um, the Auckland Māori stood up against that and went, wait a minute, you're not going to come here and tell us mm. what to do with our water, you know. Um, so it's, it's kind of, yeah, I, I just, and then above everything else, I believe we're New Zealanders and we're one people. 
Yeah. Like, and and this yeah. whole thing of like Marty, you know, what's really aggravating people is like, oh, Marty is going to be higher up on the waiting list. You know, the colour of your skin should not determine where you are on a waiting list. That is up to the medical people to decide who mm. they prioritise for an operation based on their individual medical mm. thing. And I mean, this is where the government has come and sat between patients and doctors. The government's come and sat in the middle and gone, doesn't matter what, doesn't matter what conditions you've got, we say it's good for you whether your doctor does or not, and we're going to override your doctor, and if he doesn't agree with us, we're going to fire him like that. And that's okay. literally... And this is the same thing. It's them going, no, we're going to say that Marty are going to be higher on the, oh, on, the, on, the, on the waiting list because yeah. they're more disadvantaged. Well, there's, there's Pakia people and Chinese people and Indian they're people that are, disadvantaged, they're, that are disadvantaged as well. It's they're, like, wanting, they're wanting to rack us up and hate each other and we're not going, yeah. to, buy, we're not going to buy into no, it. Tell me it. this. I'm talking to Ali Cook. Who, if I read out all the things that she's doing right now, it would take up a lot more of the interview. But chiefly at the moment, she's standing for the Freedoms New Zealand Party, along with Sue Gray and Bishop Brian Tamaki. And she's admiring what Destiny Church is doing, particularly with young men, as well we all should. And I suggest, Ali, that you go along and see how they do it. And report to us. It'd be wonderful to hear about that and go to Destiny Church. And I'll be looking forward to talking to Brian about that because. Um, well, Man Up us, is the organization that he's Man got. Up, and the first yes. I knew of Man Up was um, during the cyclone up in the yes. Hawke's Bay. They did all he that had work. All these truckloads of these guys just turned up with wheelbarrows, shovels, diggers, trucks, mm. and they just got into it. And I went, Who's this? This is Man Up. Oh, this is Brian's outfit, man up. This is what he does with his tithing, you know. Okay, enough of Brian. We're going to talk to Brian on his own account. Yeah. Now, tell me, where can I find your, shall we say, interaction with Mr. Damien O'Connor? Oh, um, well, I've just put it up on the Outdoors Party page and I've put it up on my Twitter at Kiwi Alley. So Kiwi Alley, at outdoor, New outdoor New Zealand. Great. Now, amongst all of this, Ali, you have a new song, which I've just listened to. I do. Yeah, yeah, which is um, Freedom NZ, Freedom New Zealand. Um, and so it's really, aside from the party, yes, it's close to the name, but there's no S on it. It's just Freedom New Zealand. So it's asking for us to ask back our freedom, and it's very in the face with the lyrics. Yes. So, you know, um, you we're going to play it. 15 minute cities hidden under climate crisis funds, you know, like. That's because all the cycleways that are being created everywhere that are driving everyone mad with all the bollards and that, it's all being done from a thing called SURF, which is a climate emergency response fund. You would think with a name like that, they'd be doing things like, I don't know, dredging out rivers, building rocks, seawalls, doing stop bangs. <laughs> but oh no, 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 it's to get you out of your car by 2030. That's what yeah. it actually is for. And so they're, they're doing that. And so they're doing that in Motueka in my little town at the moment. So we're standing up. We push back. We've actually we've actually pushed it back. They were going to take all the parks away up the main street. And the average normal person thinks, oh, they're putting in cycleways, but we don't want that outside our business because nobody will be able to park. But what they don't understand is it's coming from the Climate Emergency Response Fund through transport choices through Waka Katahi. And what it is is to discourage people from using their car. It's not about cycleways. It's about discourage you from driving your car. Ellie Cook, you're truly a legend. 
Uh, we're going to close on your wonderful song. We thank, thank you, you for your efforts on all our behalfs. We love it <laughs> that you keep strong and happy and purposeful against this literally torrent uh, of tyrannical um, overreach. And yeah. we, all of us here at RCR and all the listeners, we wish Bailey every success. And yeah. we look forward to him getting married. Has he got a girl in mind? He has. He's engaged for his girl. So, yeah, they're, you know, so they're, they're, they're going to get married. And, you know, I mean, he's he's getting there. It, it's As he says, it comes to haunt him every so often. It's like he's keeping it at bay with the medication when he gets the odd flare-up every few weeks. Well, I'm going to watch that video on Outdoor New Zealand Party. Yeah. Um, I suggest our I'll listeners send you do. A link. And we'll make yeah. up our own mind about that. And we'll close on your wonderful song. Ali Cook, always a pleasure. We're going to have you back. Maybe we'll have you back as an MP. How would Fingers that be? Crossed. Minister crossed. of Broadcasting, Ali Cook, oh, having yeah. just sacked the board of New Zealand on air uh, <laughs> uh, and reaching out to support New Zealand artists and New Zealand, New Zealand productions with New Zealand money. Oh, how does that sound? Yes. Like a dream come true? It will be. Take care, Ali. All the best. You too, mate. Bye. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. And then we come up to my favourite thing of the week, mailbag. Oh, I so love hearing from guests and I love hearing from listeners and I love your comments. I love your suggestions. It is fantastic. Please keep them coming. You can text me at 2057. Send me an email, inbox at realitycheck.radio. Let's go through the mailbag. Here we go. Adored listening to Avril and Rodney. Wonderful stuff. Thank you, RCR and Rodney. Great programming. That was for Mary. Thank you, Mary. Thank you for listening. And thank you for texting. Because, I don't know, the feedback's great because it keeps us going, keeps us enthused. Uh, keeps us excited. Rodney Hyde, don't hold back. What is it with all these people telling you to shut your mouth? <laughs> and that interviewer speak. You're a wonderful, wonderful speaker. This must be my mum. And my favourite RCR host, you're doing a great job. Thank you for interviewing Liz. Can't help but think Leighton should join her team with the same values from Amber. Whoa. What a terrific interview with Malcolm, the editor of the Daily Telegraph. He was great. He was amazing. I really loved him and his what he's done. It's amazing. His motivation for standing up and providing a safe space to speak out and spoken from the heart brought me to tears. Thank you, RCR, Rodney, and special thanks to the courageous editor of the Daily Telegraph.co.nz. Excellent show, Rodney, from Paul. Totally agree regarding the MoCo on anyone, especially TV presenters. Um, oh, isn't it so nice to get this feedback? Hi, Rodney. You mentioned on Thursday with Mackie Herbert that she's the only great-grandmother that has stood for Parliament. Just an FYI, Hannah Tamaki, leader of Vision New Zealand, part of Freedom New Zealand, is a great-grandmother also standing, Anthony. I did not know that. Well done. We've got two great-grandmothers standing for Parliament. That is fabulous. Uh, Rodney, did you see the primary school in Oklahoma that the board has appointed <laughs> a drag queen with a history of child porn as the principal of the school? Surely that can't be true, can it? Hi, Rodney and team. Is there a reasonable reason why no sports person or musician 
came forward to support or even reject the protesters at Parliament. Hmm, I don't understand that one. I'm sorry, Ross. Um, Rodney, we are living men and women, not citizens. Citizens means we're part of the corporations. It would be great to do a talk on living man, common law, natural law, and how the legalese in our current legal system is not a justice system. Oh, that would be good. I don't know uh, much about it. Uh, that's the plan of government, to lower our children's cognitive ability so they can manipulate them to becoming their army, just like Hitler did. Have loved listening to Helen and Rodney this morning. What a brave lady. Oh, she is. And we need her most definitely. Blessings to her, Jax. Rodney, your comparison of the old versus new conservative party is a bit like being a Christian who's privileged and self-righteous, living a workspace faith to a broken person who's born again under God's grace and forgiveness. Well done to a great interview, Paul. That is a good way of looking at it. As for what's happening to the schools around the indoctrination of our kids, I, for one, am totally against it as a lesbian. There are many lesbians out there like me. Thanks. Well, thank you for that. Um, it's an attack on all of us, isn't it? And especially lesbians, because inside out teach, we learned at the Ministry of Transport, they teach that if you're lesbian, you have to include men who call themselves women as a potential lover because gender is everything and sex is nothing, which actually denies not just womanhood, but <laughs> homosexuality. <laughs> they are crazy. There are no words for how much I appreciate and love the honesty you genuine broadcasters are supporting the New Zealand way of life and values that we desperately want to preserve. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for your massive contribution to saving this country. There's only one problem. I can't stop listening and get behind with my work but my head and heart are all the more healthy and strong for hearing your words of truth and give me hope for the future, Carolyn. Thank you so much. That was so nice. Cannot agree with the use of pronouns. Being an English teacher, principal, dean of education, board chair of one of the largest intermediate schools in Auckland. Scenario, board of trustees is legally liable for the safety of students. If a child is simply allowed to transition and is encouraged to do so, and say a girl decides to have surgery, eight years later she realises it was a snake and decides to sue those responsible, the present board can and will be held liable. Excellent talk, Rodney, with Free Speech Union. Great food for thought. It was. That Jonathan Ailing, he's wonderful. Rodney, thank you. This is beautiful and so needed in our secular society. Julian Hawkes Bay. Thanks, Rodney. You're very blessed to have a family like yours. I look after a child that has no mother. Father shot dead. Mungle mob leader lives with auntie. And not good. He's eight. And has very little chance. God bless. Thank you for looking after him. And thank you for your kind words. Oh, my goodness. I wonder how many children there are actually with no love from their mum or dad and actually being subjected to violence just breaks your heart. It's at the stage, Rodney, where you can't put information on the radio or the newspapers, so there is now nowhere to get information out other than letterbox drop or standing on the corner speaking out. Rodney, today is 130 years since women received the vote in New Zealand. Oh, my goodness, woman. I wouldn't be able to even have that now because I don't know what a woman is. Rodney, another great show this morning. Lovely to hear about your thankfulness for daily blessings. Great guests, also people with common sense blessings, Alistair and Jackie. Thank you. Oh, my, oh, my. I've sat and listened with very mixed emotions to Helen and Rodney for the last hour. 
What a sad beginning to Helen's life, but inspiring, interesting, and hopeful future she portrays. She really is um, wonderful, Helen Horton, leader of the New Conservatives. Man, she was impressive in that interview. Woman are XX chromosome, men are XY. End of discussion. I agree. Helen was amazing. I was nodding along. I'm homeschooling now since the gender rubbish hit my radar. We need more people like this in Parliament. I'm just worried the minor party split votes will go wasted. I wanted to know I'd be voting for if it wasn't so crucial that I put our vote into a realistic win. That's why I'm voting Winnie this time. Massive respect to Helen. She's an inspiration. Well, you can, it's your vote. But to me, I'd vote for the party you want. If you support Helen, vote for her. I don't think it's wasted. It sends a signal. To Rodney, well, thanks for sharing your testimony. I'm sure many have prayed for you over the years. Bravo. Yes, they have. And thank you for that. I've been very blessed to have people that have prayed for me and it's worked dear rodney i have been enjoying listening to you since you were occasionally on the platform i've been absolutely delighted to hear your spiritual journey every time you expressed your questions in this area i would put up a quick prayer that god would spend the right send the right people into your life and i'm so happy and grateful that my prayers have been answered they have been i have also been meaning to say for a long time that i often think about the interview you did with patty the drum major I loved how you took the time to get to know him before getting into the injury part of his tale. I was sad how it ended with him, accepting that his life would be shortened. It'd be amazing to hear a follow-up with him one day to see how he's doing now. Kind regards, Bronwyn. We will. We will. From Libby. Thank you for hosting Jonathan from the Free Speech Union. How amazing is that young man's mind? He's incredible, and your way of hosting brought out the best in him. I'm a school counsellor and get confused all the time writing my notes regarding pronouns. I'm happy to respect students' choice as long as not pushed on them by government-funded organisation, but that is another topic. But when I write my notes using they, them always feels wrong for me. From a linguistic, geeky English point of view, as they, them refers to more than one person. Are we encouraging multiple personality kids here? Said with tongue-in-cheek. It's just so hard to write correct English with those pronouns in a way that makes sense. I have to wonder if all of this is part of the dumbing down in education, a deconstructive grammar. You have to wonder. Keep up the amazing work. You're a beautiful person. There are so many of us at grassroots level that value 100% from Libby. It is funny that uh, pronouns, because when you're reading even the newspaper now, you're often sort of reading it twice and you can't make sense because um, it's got this dilemma all the way through it. Here, poor, poor. I don't understand how the treasonous politicians get away with signing things and pushing legislation through without going through the correct process of proper consultation with the people who employed them. Why are they not held accountable and basically just fired from their position if they're found to be underhand and acted against their country and rights? Surely these things are criminal. It's amazing, isn't it? We have a we have a parliament that is only accountable to voters every three years, and it's but presented with quite a limited choice. It's just sort of recycling the ones that are there. Hi, Rodney. Enjoying your political party. Have you interviewed the political party? If not, I'm sure would appreciate if you would. Oh, that's the Women's Rights Party. I've emailed them and not heard back. I'll follow up, Caroline. Thank you. Enjoy your show. Listening to you this morning, it is sad to see how the drive towards apartheid. As the next South African, I have received much mockery for being racist, which I am not, and I find offensive. 
Look at how there are political parties in South Africa driving for retribution for the wrongs of the past, determined to get their pound of flesh. Africa is an incredible example of how separatism of any form fails, and only the upper elite benefit. This is a sad day for New Zealand when we contemplate implementing separate law for separate race. Fifty years back, New Zealand was boycotting the Springboks for apartheid. Now an encouraging advert for new not an encouraging advert for attracting new immigrants. Good show, thank you. Kind regards, Joe. Tell governance is not democracy, the Maori electorates are no longer justified. Hear, hear to that. To Rodney and Muriel, seriously scary conversation. New Zealand is in serious trouble. We need a strong New Zealand leader, strong change. New Zealand referendum, scrap, delete, and never return to tia. Poor, poor. Thank you, Rodney and Muriel, fabulous New Zealanders. Attention, Rodney. Thursday, the 21st September interview with lipid nanoparticles, Kathy Jameson. Rodney, as you say, the lipid part of the injection is to cloak what the body can receive, meaning the mRNA component gains access to the body, bypassing the natural defense the body uses. So essentially, this means a Trojan horse has filled the body. mRNA, I'll remind you, was originally for cancer research use. What is the prevalent disease that people have been coming down with ever since the vaccine mandates? Correct. Cancer. And people wonder why. From Rob. Interesting. That is very interesting. Hi, Rodney. Batches of vaccine are broken up and dispatched in random boxes. This happens with all vaccines. It is to stop adverse events showing up in a geographic area, thus alerting the public that there is something wrong. It's all laid out in the American film series, The Truth About Vaccines. Ha, huh, thank you for that. Ha, huh, I did not know that. Hi, Rodney. The randomizing of vaccine batches has been happening since Andrew Wakefield questioned the MMR vaccine, and that's probably why they're not allowed to serialize them. Ah, so much to learn, isn't there? Hi, Rodney Karahiri, your gardening chat with Wally. By the way, I love him. Have you ever sliced a tomato and placed the slices flat in a pot with potting mix? You cover with about one and a half centimeters of potting mix. Give it what it needs and wait. Little tomato plants will start to pop up in a few weeks. It's so exciting. Oh, how wonderful. Great plant prices for plants at Cromwell Polytech. See open time dates. Oh, good. Hi, National Gardening Week is coming up, 16th to 23rd of October, and this year's theme is Veggies, Better Homegrown, aims to shine light on the multiple benefits of growing your own vegetables. Would you be interested to talk to horticulturist Kate Hiller from renowned English horticultural family about how to grow food in small spaces? Five veggies that provide the most value, five non-foul veggies to start with, and the importance of flowers to trap pollinators. We could do a listener giveaway of Yates' new range. Reggie, I look forward to hearing from you. Regards, Leanne. I will do that, Leanne. I will contact you. Thank you so much for that. Um, oh, my goodness, there are so many. I hope and pray you and your family are doing well. I would like to acknowledge you and RCR for all the thought, effort, and dedication of your time for the sake of others. I've listened to RCA from its beginnings and have appreciated the variation of information interviews. It's uplifting to know the RCR is a community that has ever grown. Love your show, Rodney, and your work for the vaccine. You'll be horrified by my discovery today. Please bring this up with your listening public. Beggars belief that taxpayers' money to subvert democracy and avoid discussing the body of evidence and the bodies of people. It's a podcast. I must listen to it. Steve Oliver would be a great MP. Oh, he would be. He would be so good. I got huge respect for Steve and Probably more than anyone, he's helped me with my Christian journey. 
And I don't know why he has been such a help and encouragement, because I think it's because he's a big, tough guy. And I can see how opening himself up to Christ has changed him. And it's uplifting and made me want to find out more. Rodney, you sum it up perfectly. I'm an electrician. I don't work because I'm over the government telling me how to do my job, which I'm qualified and experienced. I'm not even allowed to work on my own properties. I refuse to get a government license. Goodness me. Great interview with Roe Edge, especially you explaining how the powers split with MMP and coalition governments. Very enlightening to us listeners who don't really understand how complex it all is. Your talk also, without you saying, you talk also without you saying you revealed how easy it is for a party to ride roughshod, ramming through parliament, pet policies, without any opposition as the Labour Party has done for the last three years. Absolute power corrupts absolutely, as with the case with that awful PM, Jacinda Dern. Thank you for all your wonderful interviews of various interesting Kiwis. Thank you so much, because it is amazing how much power MPs have. And of course, they've gathered more power as the fourth estate have given up, have given up their job, basically. They're not holding anyone to account. Hi, Rodney and Lorraine. So good to have you on my only source of information. The last chat you guys had was so good, I listened to it three times. Nice. To make sure I didn't miss anything. As you could probably tell, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, so I need to do things over. I bet that's not true. I just wanted to say that Lee Donahue mentioned you in his debate and what an inspiration you have been to youngsters through our sporting history. This is to Lorraine, obviously, and what you do for women's sports today. It's a shame that there were a bunch of Marxist loonies there who didn't debate but just made stupid remarks and used ad hominem, which is just ridiculous and not worth listening to. I also noticed that the leftist audience were planted to obviously cheer on the loonies. You two together are formidable force, so please keep up the good work to you both. Cheers, Mike. I'm totally on board with men not competing in women's sport, but in the very rare cases where people are born with ambiguous genitalia, I think we should be careful about the language we use to describe these individuals. I don't think it's necessarily correct to define the person being referred to as a man. In my humble opinion, these individuals should be given the autonomy of referring to themselves as they wish. I do think that testosterone level test is a logical way to determine which category people compete in. Ali. Ah, fair enough. Hey, Rodney. If you know the goal is depopulation, then it all makes sense. No woman, no man, only genderless, sexless people. No ongoing life. Excellent show, Rod. It's first time listener, despise this government, but can't vote act. Seymour's too immature and Luxembourg just will not grow up here. We have this trans rubbish, backs injured and dead, agenda 2030 and the carbon hoax. New Zealand First is the only one talking about any of this. Never thought I'd ever vote for them, but real impressed with Leo Donahue. First time for RCR. I've been meaning to check you out. Got you on Telegram. We'll tune into Peter Williams too. Cheers, Liz. Uh, thank you so much for your feedback. It means a lot to me, and I hope you enjoy me reading it through. You can send me a text at 2057. Email me inbox at rallycheck.radio. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on Rally Check Radio. We've got some exciting news right out of the RCR oven. We have our very own mobile app coming out soon. It's currently in testing, and it will shortly be available to download from the app stores, both iOS and Android. Thank you all for being so patient while we've been working hard behind the scenes. 
Our test bunnies have had a wee play on the test version and they just know you're going to love it. Our video guy Henry has put together a little video to show you all what's in store. You can check that out at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash app. That's at realitycheck.radio forward slash app. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Please send me a text at 2057. Email me inbox at rallycheck.radio. Like I keep saying, I love hearing from you, building up our community. Mr. Hipkins got sick, tested, and has COVID. Now, I don't like taking pleasure in someone's ill health. But I almost are prepared to admit an exception for Mr. Hipkins because how amazingly ironic is it that he's got COVID? He was the Minister of Health that endlessly told us that these vaccines were safer and effective and that we had to take them so, A, we wouldn't get sick and die, and B, we wouldn't be vehicles for transmission. And if we didn't get vaccined under his authority, uh, we could lose our jobs or would lose our jobs and lose our livelihood and lose our homes, lose everything, and demonize those who wouldn't take the vax. Well, he double-vaxxed himself. He's had every booster. He's proudly gone on TV getting the shot. And oh, my goodness, he's got COVID. Now, how karma-like is that? Doesn't it? Shouldn't that give him pause for thought? Because if this vaccine was safe and effective, he wouldn't get COVID because it would be effective against COVID. Clearly, it is not. And clearly, if you can get it, you can transmit it. Can he not see that? Can he not see that him now getting COVID contradicts? everything that he was telling us as Minister of Health and contradicts and makes a mockery of his policies to force his mandates on us and the destruction of families and our society that took place under his tyrannical rule as Minister of Health. Can he not see that? And if it's not effective, can he not wonder whether it's not safe? And where are the legacy media in all of this? They harped on and on and on with Jacinda's one source of truth and get vexed. He set the goals, push for it. Well, here's the number one lead proponent for getting jabbed got COVID, didn't work. But there are no questions. No questions are asked. Nothing's queried. Oh, yeah, no, he got the jab. Oh, yeah, he's got, he's got COVID, but it's a different sort of COVID, you know, and it's, oh, he'd be a lot sicker if he hadn't had the jab. 
I mean, how many times do we have to hear this sort of uh, explanation of the facts not proving the theory wrong? I mean, we are not that stupid, and the legacy media and our politicians need to wake up. Mr. Hipkins, despite being double-faxed and boosted and being all up to date and being our Minister of Health, has got COVID. Of course, it's quite possible. Two things are quite possible. The first point is that he doesn't have COVID and he really can't stomach the campaign having five days rest. Or it's quite possible that he doesn't have COVID and they've worked out the best thing they can do for the campaign is to keep Mr. Hipkins away from the public. Could be possible. I wouldn't put it past them. But it's probably he's got COVID, and any of those three explanations should be bad for Mr. Hipkins, and indeed all the MPs, because Mr. Lux and Mr. Seymour, the Greens, the Maori Party, they all said, get jabbed. They all sang stupid songs. They all went on and said, get jabbed. Here I am getting jabbed. Safe and effective. Get this, and transmission stops. You can't get sick if you get the jab. Well. Like we say, Mr. Hipkins can't campaign, got COVID, vaccine didn't work. You're on Rally Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Send us a text, 2057, email inbox at radio. You're listening to Politics Explained. Back to basics in the political sandpit with Rodney Hyde and Tane Webster. You're on Rally Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, and we've got our regular uh, feature, Politics Explained, Back to Basics in the Political Sandpit with Tane Webster. Good morning, Tane. Good morning, Rodney. It's great to be well, here again. Oh, well, what do you got for me? What's What's been happening in politics? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, you already know, but I think a good question for this week would be, given recent events... Uh, what are the standards of behaviour required of MPs? Are, are, there, are there things written into the position? No. So for MPs, and this is quite a good thing, um, once you're elected, that's it. You're, you're an MP for the three years. Now, for memory, I don't think you can be declared bankrupt. Um, that puts you out of parliament. And there used to be a provision that you could be declared insane. I don't think anyone's ever had that. But apart from that, um, your behaviour is not something that anyone can do much about. Now, your caucus and your party leader under MMP can move to expel you and force you to go independent. And, of course, the significance of that is we have that walker jumping bill that can see you thrown out of parliament. In the old days... They could just throw you out of the party and you'd sit as an independent. So MPs have free range. And I think this is important because it acts as a as a great um, – it gives MPs an ability to buck the party. And we don't see enough of that. Uh, MPs are too scared to buck the party, even as it is, even though they can. They won't. And you can imagine that um, you had too much to drink and you've been questioning things, and the 
party leader gets to throw you out of the party on that basis. Um, well, they've got to follow a process to throw you out of the party. And absent MMP, you don't go out of parliament. That's why I oppose the Walker jumping bill, because I think it's wrong that a party leader can expel, essentially, an MP from parliament, because it just entrenches the power of the leader. I'd much rather that they, you can kick them out of your party, but they stay in parliament. It gets different. Now, I should say, the standards of behaviour uh, that are maintained are maintained in the chamber. So when you're in the debating chamber, uh, there's a high level of decorum. So gentlemen have to wear a tie and a suit jacket. Um, I think that's been overdone by those um, crazies that have gone in and said wearing a tie is just too much for me. I love that because it just makes people respectful and better behaved when they get dressed up and sit in the chamber. Yeah. You can imagine it if everyone walked in in T-shirt and jeans and flip-flops, that it just doesn't have that institutional respect, that historical respect. You're walking there. You walk into the debating chamber and right around the wall on two rings, and I saw it every time I walked in and every time I was sitting there, I'd survey it. And it's a memorial, each one, to all the battles where Kiwis have fought and died. And it makes you stop and think because they literally fought and died so we could have a parliament mm. and mm. debate. And you respect that. You know, if you're sitting there in jandals and flip-flops and T-shirts, it would be terrible. Yeah, I uh, just a quick point on the, the, the suits and whatnot. I, I agree with that, although... I feel some of them just need to be a bit more creative. It seems like the 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 men in in parliament's either dark grey or navy. It's just there's no creativity there. I mean, don't want to wear anything too silly, but just a little bit more. You know, I'm sure there's was work to be done there. Now on the on the issue of code of dress or whatever you want to call it, what's the deal with that guy with the cowboy hat? What's the deal? There? Well, you were never allowed a hat. And he insisted it, and because he's Maori, he's special, I guess, and he was allowed to have a hat. You weren't allowed to wear a hat into Parliament, even in the days when men wore top hats. I don't think you were allowed a hat. Um, and he's got it that you can't wear a tie. He's got some cowboy thing around them. He sounds seriously out to lunch. By the way, there's no dress code for women. Um, so women can go in. Famously, Ruth Richardson went in one time to vote in her tracksuit uh, late one night when they had an all-night sitting and caused a furore. Um, but she could, but a man couldn't. And there's other little funny rules about Parliament. You're, you're not to approach someone uh, within two sword lengths uh, because the Parliaments, they used to carry swords. And right, if you got within right. two sword lengths, they thought you might hit them. And um, so even now, you ask someone's permission to go and sit beside them and have a chat. Um, you don't just bowl up and sit beside someone and, you know, they could make a complaint to the speaker. Um, uh, but you are, you know, and there's, there's very strict rules. I asked the clerk, David McGee, he was, the, he was a Westminster, he was renowned right through the Commonwealth for his expertise in standing orders. 
And I asked him, what are all these rules for, Mr. McGee? And he said that they had to stop politicians talking. And it's quite funny because that's exactly what the rules do. You know, you could talk for 10 minutes, and now you shut up and sit down. You've had your say, and it's someone else's turn. So there are very strict rules in our parliament, and you can see that because you're debating things that are tough and hard. And um, so uh, you have to keep it respectful, even though you feel strongly about something and people are inflamed and impassioned. Um, now, with with MPs too, um, we've moved in. We used to not even have to declare a pecuniary interest register, but now we do, as we've seen uh, with Mr. Michael Wood. Uh, so there is increasing obligations upon MPs. With ministers, though, completely different scenario. With ministers, there's a huge standard and code of conduct about what you are allowed to do and what you're not to do. You're bursting with the question, Tane. Yeah, when you're talking before about the rules of the code of conduct and whatnot, there is quite a bit of heckling that goes on. In Parliament? From opposition MPs. Yes. Um, well, both sides. That's up, to, that's up to the Speaker. And um, heckling is is allowed, but if you overheckle, the speaker will just shut you down. So you can't drown out a speech. Uh, and if the person speaking complains, the heckler will be uh, controlled to desist. Most MPs like a bit of a heckling because it sort of keeps everyone awake and on their toes. And there are some fantastic, fantastic heckles. Um, the greatest one of all time for handling heckles was David Longy and Sir Robert Muldoon. Um, I'm just thinking of one that I can recall was David Longy was up speaking and um, someone called out that a thought had just crossed his mind. And <laughs> David Longy said, not a very, fun, not a very long journey. Um, so, you know, it's part of the fun of Parliament to heckle. And, and to speak up, I imagine it's got a bit um, doleful and joyless now. But the point is, when you become a minister, it all changes. And you're given a manual of rules, and they are very, very strict. And you get advised on them, and you get told about them. And there's no way that you can be ignorant of them. And that's not a defence. And the reason that that has to be the case is because once you're a minister, you're in charge of a government department, probably several government departments, and their chief executive depends on you for their job. You can get them fired. And so you have the ability to influence a government department, to um, influence it to your business partners, to your family's advantage, um, to be a very, very bad, corrupt person without even realising it. Because if, oh, look, I've got a mate. Could you just go and help this mate for me? Or I even I have a constituent and he needs help. You can't do that as a minister, right? Because you're the one in charge. And so you're playing favourites. And so if you have a, a an electorate issue come to you uh, to do with your department, you pass it off to another MP to handle because you don't want to be caught in that conflict of interest. 
And it's also made very plain because you're a decision maker. You know, you're making decisions on laws that could mean millions and millions of dollars to people, win or lose. Uh, you're making decisions on um, that will affect people's lives. You know, what's an essential business and not an essential business when COVID was going on? You're the minister. You're in the cabinet making those decisions. And, of course, it's very important that there be confidentiality and not giving someone a heads up about what's about to happen. Um, so as a minister, it becomes very, very significant, the standards of behavior. And it's also impressed upon you that you're a minister 24 hours a day, seven days a week. There's not a, there's not a period when you're not a minister. You're sort of always a minister. We've seen a lot of fudging on that. Um, and it's quite a hard transition to make from being an MP where you're irresponsible. That is to say, you're not responsible for anything other than speaking and maybe submitting a report in a select committee to being a minister where you're responsible for everything in your purview. And you're also responsible for everything in the cabinet because you're a part of the cabinet. Um, and the behavior that we've seen um, is truly shocking to me because I don't have a lot of respect for government and, and these things, but what we've seen is highly disrespectful to our country and, and to people, and, and I think that's been lost. Now, interestingly, the cabinet manual is enforced by the prime minister, and the prime minister decides whether someone's broken the rules or not full stop. So it's not, there's no one else. So you could be in flagrant breach of the rules and the Prime Minister say, oh, that's okay. Or you could be hardly in breach of the rules and the Prime Minister decide uh, that's unacceptable. And so the Prime Minister has absolutely, absolute power, tyrannical power over who is a minister and who is not. And so when, just, when, when, when we see this with, um, what was the lady's name? I've forgotten it. Um, Alan, Kerry Allen. Um, when we see that that behaviour, um, whether she stays as a minister or not, not as an MP or not, whether she stays as a minister or not is entirely on Mr. Hipkins. Um, I should say, I feel upset about this issue that the whole thing hasn't been explained to us. I think there should be, from the Prime Minister, because it's a minister, he should be ex up there explaining, and that would be the purpose of that debate, to explain exactly what happened. Because we don't know, and it's significant. Why? Because she's a minister. And we, we must know what she's, she's been exercising power in the cabinet. And we don't know what's happened. We don't know what the significance of this. We don't know where they've gone. Um, and that the prime minister can sort of not give an explanation other than our oh, mental health episode. Um, that doesn't get a government off the hook. That was a government minister, my goodness. And the fact that the media aren't probing this means that we have sort of like a closed shop. And here's what I reckon. I reckon everyone in the media and everyone in Parliament and everyone in the Cabinet knows exactly what happened. 
I suspect there's a lot more to it. But they're not going to tell us. And that's what you feel is happening now in our government and our parliament. It's yeah, like, just there when you mentioned uh, media and their coverage of it, it just reminded me of something, and I just did a quick Google search to, to confirm it, but there's an article from ABC News in Australia, which, if you're not familiar, is more of a left-leaning outlet over there. And the way they've titled the article is New Zealand Justice Minister Kerry Allen resigns after car crash while allegedly over legal alcohol limit. Is it allegedly? I, th- I thought this was a known fact. Yeah, no? well, I, I thought it was a known fact. But we don't know whether she was alone in the car. We know that she didn't follow the police. Like, what was it? She refused to accompany the police. What was going on at that point? She's a Minister of Justice. At that moment, she is the Prime Minister's Minister of Justice. Now, the Minister of Justice refused to accompany the police. Why? What was going on? Where was she? We've seen that little video of the car crash, and there's no police officer there, no Kerry Allen there, and it's still a dangerous situation. It was immediately following the accident, it would seem. No one was there. Where was she? Where were the police? What, what were the circumstances of this? And I think there's quite a story there, and I think we're not being told because why? You're not allowed to ask questions? I understand she's not well, right? It's not good. But Prime Minister Hipkins, his Minister of Justice, has done, I don't know of anything worse in, ever in the private life or behaviour of a minister than what has just occurred. I realise they make decisions that are far worse, right, as governments. But this is a shocker. I couldn't imagine an MP refusing to accompany the police. What on earth were the circumstances? And we deserve to know why. Because it's our government, not theirs. It's not the way it's being presented to us. There you go. I'm um, The behaviour of a minister is a big deal because they set the standard for the department. What are we saying to the Ministry of Justice officials now that, you know, their minister doesn't follow the rules? You don't have to either. Where's the Prime Minister and stating very clearly that he expects his ministers to follow the law and not be above it? This minister clearly thought she was above it. Thank goodness that the police didn't agree with her. Because the police could have just said, oh, yeah, let her go. She's a minister. That might be the next step. Sure, yeah. That's yeah. how serious this is. And, I mean, imagine it. Imagine it that you crash a car as a minister and the police say, oh, yeah, we won't worry about this. It's a minister. Correct? And they say, then they say um, something really bad happens, money changes hands or whatever. Oh, well, it's a minister. Because, again, our prime minister hasn't explained why our Minister of Justice was breaking the law. Because that's what's happened here. Hmm. On several fronts, it would seem. But we don't know. There you go. That's politics explained. Um, Oh, my goodness. It's a bad one, but it's bad in a way 
that is not being explained to us or being presented to us. It's not just a personal circumstance for the minister concerned or the private citizen now as concerned or the MP finishing out her term concerned. It's a big issue for how we are governed and whether our ministers are above the law and whether our government has to follow the law. Let's get that straight. And let's get some full transparency about what was happening here. There you go. That was Politics Explained. You can see I'm a bit hot about this. I feel sorry for Kerry Allen because she's clearly, you know, got troubles. But I actually think there's a bigger picture here about our government. Uh, That was Tane Webster, Politics Explained. Send us an email, inbox at rallycheck.radio. Send us a text with your thoughts at 2057. I smell a big rat because when the government's not explaining something, they're hiding something. There you go. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you, Tane. Catch you later, Rodney. You've been listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, This is Reality Check Radio. It's been Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Oh, my goodness. We had Wonky Donk. No, Wonky Donkey. Why do I want to say Wonky Donk? I don't know. Wonky Donkey. Great book. My kids loved it. And, of course, it comes with a song. It's put to music by Craig Smith, the author. I had no idea it had been so amazingly successful. And what a hoot that a a Scottish granny being surreptitiously filmed and uploading it to a private knitting group uh, could become, what I guess, the greatest marketing uh, sensation for books ever with over 500 million views. Great story. And then, of course, Ali Cook, who tragically, uh, her son is one of the many vaccine injured, and that is motivating her to have the petition and to stand for parliament. Wonderful to catch up with her. I love her spirit. I love her energy. There's so many great people standing for parliament, and instead we just recycle the ones that are there. It's tragic, isn't it? You're on Radley Check Radio. It's been Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Thank you for listening. Thank you for coming along. Please send me a text, 2057. Email me, inbox at I do love hearing from you. It makes us feel part of a community, uh, part of a family, part of a group, part of a tribe. Gives us a sense of belonging with each other. And ultimately, we want to increase that because together we are strong. Uh, we can be picked off one by one. And we don't want to be picked off one by one. We want to be strong as a group, strong for freedom, strong for each other, strong for our country. Thank you for listening.